And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Hopefully, you're not near uh, Tonga. There's a major volcano erupting in Tonga, which is in the middle of nowhere in the South Pacific. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, we have a really interesting show for everyone this morning, or this afternoon, or this evening, because we're going to be launching phase two of our open hailing frequencies experiment. As you who are followers of the show undoubtedly remember, over the last month plus a few days, we have been communicating with extraterrestrials. Well, technically I should not say that. We are communicating with someone. The evidence indicates they're extraterrestrials. And what's that evidence? Well, um, during the first test transmissions on the evening of this uh, of, of the show on December 4th, about two minutes after uh, Jimmy Blanchett, who had loaned us his very high-power radio telescope transmitter there in the northern deserts of Arizona uh, near Prescott, he had loaned us this facility, and uh, he and uh, David Sarita put together a very interesting coded sequence um, of sounds and signals and frequencies and geometry and even some scanned imagery, which we added to over the month and we repeatedly transmitted on the weekends of the um, 4th, the 11th, the 18th, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, the day after Christmas. And on that first transmission, which was the evening of the 4th, starting about a half an hour before the other side of midnight comes on the air. Uh, Jimmy began his transmissions, and about two minutes after he began, UFOs, UAPs, vehicles, craft, uh, you know, anti-gravity something started popping in and out of hyperspace directly over the antenna, literally photobombing the sky um, against which the antenna system was pointing, which because we had designed this beforehand, was uh, aimed at Amuamua, this first interstellar visitor, which went zipping through the solar system about four years ago in late 2017, in October. And uh, tonight, and when we started like a month ago, it's so far out there, it was about two and a half billion miles from the sun. Two and a half billion miles plus 93 million miles in in essence, from the Earth, and that's almost the distance to the planet Neptune, which is about 2.7 billion. So it's way out there. The light travel time, which also equates to the speed of radio transmissions in the Einsteinian limited relativistic universe in which we mainstream science thinks we are constrained, the one-way travel time is about 3.7 hours, So you multiply that by two, it's almost eight hours to send a signal from the Earth and get a return. Well, we got return signals within minutes of Jimmy starting the transmission, and UFO showed up. So that kind of knocks into a cocked hat that we're dealing with someone who is constrained by the limitations of mainstream terrestrial science circa the 21st century. In other words, whoever is zipping around um, and darting in and out of hyperspace because these objects 
that appeared on his low light level uh, television camera, uh, literally in the antenna beam between the telescope and Muamua, you know, in the atmosphere, probably a mile or two upstairs above the antenna, we're photobombing the exact precise aiming point of the antenna itself. So they wanted to be seen. Furthermore, they did not transit across the sky. They didn't mimic airplanes or, you know, aerial vehicles that we create or even uh, uh, the purported, you know, vehicles of the secret space program. They literally popped in and out of somewhere, and one could say a higher dimension. And what's really interesting is that the simultaneous radio signals that uh, we received um, have this peculiar aspect that they appear to be very, 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 very high-speed burst-type transmissions, kind of like they're incredibly speeded up relative to the time stream which we are all inhabiting here tonight. Again, another potential hallmark of a transmission from another dimension where time flows differently. These are things that we're kind of exploring. So um, that was what started all of this. And every weekend thereafter, we would uh, modify the transmission somewhat and send it uh, not only to a Muamua, but there was one night where we intended to solely focus on the moon for a whole bunch of reasons that uh, are too complicated to get into tonight. And it was on that transmission sequence that David uh, marked in his uh, frequency analysis, and we'll have him go through how he does that, some numbers which immediately looked incredibly familiar. And uh, one of them was the speed of light, uh, slight variance from the current canonical mainstream speed of light, which, of course, as you know, in relativity is supposed to be constant. <clears throat> the speed of light is not constant. It actually varies as the physics varies. And there are a very long history of experiments to determine, to measure the speed of light. And they're not exactly all over the map, but there's definitely an up and down sweep through decade after decade of different scientists, different physicists, different experimental groups using different techniques to measure the speed of light. And unlike uh, relativity's insistence that it's constant, um, going back to the uh, ill-interpreted uh, Michelson-Morley experiment, the speed of light is not constant. And any decent physicist, even in a high school physics laboratory can easily now with lasers and all that measure this. Um, what we found was, or what David found was that if he adjusted the number that came in for a variable speed of light, they, whoever they were at the other end of the phone, I'm using this uh, term loosely, were sending us the speed of light. Well, in, in normal three-dimensional mainstream science, the moon is about one and a quarter light seconds away from the Earth. That's how long it takes a radio wave sent from the Earth to get to the moon, um, give or take, because the moon, of course, is all, also not exactly the same distance every time you would do this. It's in an elliptical orbit. But this particular night, whoever was getting our transmissions answered with A, the speed of light, corrected 
slightly for the real one at the moment of transmission. And the other number they sent us, which is really extraordinary, was when David went through his calculations, the number 56 popped out. What? 56? What the heck is 56? Well, when he and I talked, um, I immediately went, oh, my God, because my memory, which sometimes is better than others, instantly popped out that 56 was associated with an archaeological feature found you know, centuries ago called the Aubrey Holes. They were not found by James Aubrey. They were named after him for some obscure reason. And the most recent mainstream scientific analysis of those holes, which really are large, they're several feet across, several feet deep, they're, they're more than holes, they're almost like foundations in the chalk of the Salisbury Plain. Um, the latest model says that they originally held 56 bluestones, which are now a feature of Stonehenge much closer to the center. And the model says that those bluestones originally part of phase one uh, of the building of Stonehenge. They were later uprooted and moved to an inner circle for reasons that are not kind of really apparent, at least not apparent to me. Fortunately, tonight we have a guest, a splendid expert who, enforced, uh, in fact, uh, informed us when we did a program several weeks ago on this, that those 56 holes used to be the sockets for the 56 blue stones, marking the phase one of the Stonehenge Astronomical Observatory devoted to the moon. So, let me kind of reiterate. We send a modern 21st century radio transmission to the moon containing a whole bunch of constants and frequencies and, and hyperdimensional you know, thingies. And what we get back is a reference, absolutely unequivocal reference to A, speed of light, and B, the original phase one of Stonehenge, which is the oldest surviving ancient sacred site monument uh, observatory dedicated in terms of modern analysis, deconvolving its usages and its purpose to the moon, which of course tells us, tells me, I don't want to speak for everyone, that uh, whoever we're talking to, um, A, they're probably not on a muamua. B, they're probably a lot closer to us than uh, anyone would have imagined. I mean, if you have UFOs popping in and out over the antenna, they must be able to know what we're doing and are responding. But the, the moon stuff means maybe some of them are hanging out on the moon and they were for the benefit of the slow learners in class, i.e. us, connecting the moon and our transmissions with the most ancient human observations of the moon conducted from this remarkable monument in Stonehenge. So that's when we kind of among ourselves, Jonathan and David and me and some other folks, Maria, we all kind of thought, wouldn't it be cool if we were to set up another set of transmissions and this time start with transmitting from the center of this ancient astronomical observatory, the most ancient known in the world. And Maria, if I'm wrong, you will correct me. And that's what we're going to be doing. And the, tonight's program is kind of devoted to 
a further analysis of what we've got in terms of signals, and then a we're going to brief everyone all over the world who's listening to us live tonight in what we're going to do in phase two, which involves Stonehenge, but a lot more. And we're going to describe how you guys out there can participate. And it's all very, very simple. Um, and we'll go through all the steps and what needs to be done. And we've got several weeks before we're going to do this. We're looking now at uh, February 4th, the morning of February 4th, which is just after dawn in Britain, when Maria is going to initiate phase two of our um, open hailing frequencies enterprise mission experiment. But before I introduce all the gang, because we have another of the team members with us tonight, I do want to go through a couple of news items, uh, both old and new. Um, first of all, the tsunami alert, which was posted this morning for the northern west coast of California, thankfully has been canceled. There is a news item there, number one. Um, apparently on Friday, um, our time, there was a major volcanic eruption in the Tonga Islands, far, far out in the Pacific, and serious concern um, that the underwater volcano would uh, cause a tsunami, which happens when you displace a lot of water, either through earthquakes or volcanic explosions or pyroclastic activity or you know any of that good stuff. And so there was major concerns. If you click on that link, you'll see a whole bunch of videos and still images of all kinds of shaken water and crashing waves and up and down the Northern California coast, you know, parking lots disarranged, cars kind of moved around by floodwaters, uh, choppy waves, uh, piers destroyed. But but a big one, a big tsunami, a, a killing tsunami did not come ashore. And so um, this evening the, the tsunami alert was canceled. I mean, it takes for hours and hours at the speed of sound in water, which is 600 and some odd miles per hour, about the speed of a high-speed modern uh, jet, to make its way across a vast ocean like the Pacific. So you can have an event, and then many, many hours later, um, as we've been discussing vis-a-vis -vis La Palma on the East Coast, uh, you can have the uh, tsunami you know, come ashore and wreak havoc. Well, the good news is it's not going to happen. But the larger question is, is this part of a worldwide increase in earthquake and volcanic activity? And that portends another set of questions like, is this due to a increase in the background physics? Or is this somebody meddling? Is this someone using hyperdimensional torsion field technology to literally intervene in a very complicated geopolitical scenario where there's a whole bunch of stuff going on all over the planet simultaneously, pandemic notwithstanding, and is uh, tinkering with geology and with major, quote, natural potential disasters, part of someone's, um, shall we say, offensive against humanity. And are the answers we've been getting part of a larger set of answers to how do we get into this predicament and do we have help out there? And are they going to, in some kind of prime directive fashion, are they going to intervene? Or even more intriguing, have they already intervened? Because remember, for months and months and months since September, we posted every week on the show, our first news item was all about La Palma with the live links to the 
you know, seismic uh, observations and the geological analyses and the live webcams and all that. And then in late December, La Palma just suddenly pooped out. It just kind of quit. And I'm wondering, because I kind of wonder about these things, was that due to it just ran out of steam, pun intended, or did in fact someone use a suppressive hyperdimensional technology to quietly eliminate that problem um, as part of a larger campaign of doing things in a very non-obvious prime directive fashion to try to um, bring some help to our side, to humanity that seems to be facing major, uh, shall we say, decision points on a whole range of subjects at this critical time in the evolution of the physics, the background physics, which, of course, because of the alignment, the precession alignment with the center of the galaxy, once every, give or take, 26,000 years, physics is now up. You can't surf if surf is not up. And so there, there, there is a background for plausibly um, asking the question, um, is someone, if we're in communication with someone out there, is someone else out there doing very dastardly things in the nursery because they do not have our intentions at heart? Obviously, that's a question we cannot answer tonight, but we're going to get into the very positive decoding of whoever is talking to us. And again, there are a range of possibilities. I don't think it's a muamua. I think it's someone a lot closer. And when I say closer, that means maybe through hyperspace as opposed to a radio wave transiting four hours out and four hours back from a little speck in the dark, which is fleeing the sun that did provocatively come down from the constellation of Lyra. Uh, I talked with Chris Knowles a couple, three days ago. You may remember that uh, Chris Knowles runs something called the Sacred Sun website, where he delves into the symbology surrounding all kinds of public events, not the least of which are the release of Hollywood movies. And I've had a number of people sending me emails on, on this new major film that appeared on Netflix called Don't Look Up, which ostensibly, first level, is about a major comet going to smash into the earth and destroy all of us. Fiction, fiction, fiction alert. Item number two, that's supposed to be a cover for a more real and longer term problem facing humanity, which is global warming. And when I talked with Chris, I said, I want you to take a look at this and you know, look for telltale symbol, symbols that you've seen in other places because my feeling is that even the global warming aspect of the plot is a cover story for something for us that we delve in even more intriguing and the reaction of the president and the public and the networks and i mean it's it's really kind of a tour de force it came out of nowhere there was no advance warning that this movie which is really an a list movie i mean come on meryl streep plays the president three guesses who she's supposed to really be then you've got uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, who plays the mad, not-so-mad scientist. His assistant is Jennifer Lawrence. I mean, come on. It's just there, you know, in terms of the, of the cast. It's like, pay attention. And then there's the plot. And then there's what's going on with the Pentagon and UFOs and disclosure 
rumbling out there in the dark and then art broadcast transmissions and these extraordinary coded responses and you put it all together mixed well 2022 could in fact be the most important year in modern forget american human history so with that as kind of a prelude let me get to a couple of other news items if you look at item number two and item number three these are the standard web links we've been posting item number two is the web blog uh, fact of the matter is when you click on that you have to refresh because it doesn't refresh automatically and there's new news beyond what the headline says in item number two so just when you click on it you know refresh it and that will give you the latest news on on web i i wondered you know myself why after all these major deployments it's going to take them a now another like you know five and a half months to set this whole thing up so it's a functioning working stunningly cutting edge uh observatory read the latest couple of items when you refresh the blog because they talk about how they take this 18 segment hexagonal mirror and turn it into one unified 21 22 foot wide primary mirror for the telescope and to give you one example each of the mirrors has several what they call actuators on the back they're used to tilt and pan and you know defocus the mirrors and they're little tiny electric motors and what they do is they move the mirrors themselves these hexagonal you know uh, segments by spinning a mirror and moving a screw through a certain small amount of distance it turns out that because they ultimately have to determine the curvature of this mirror to the order of millionths of an inch when they combine all the 18 hexagonal segments into a smooth overlapping huge single primary mirror telescope it takes them a full day running at high speed to move one of the mirrors one millimeter an entire day 24 hours that shows you the incredible fine tuning capability and why it's going to take them months and months to do all the adjustments and they have to take pictures of each adjustment because they didn't have the um, ability to to put other sensors on the telescope that would measure wavelengths of light like lasers and interferometers and all that that you can do in a terrestrial lab with a big telescope so they literally a series of images and the first images they're not even going to show us because it would make the public freak out apparently at least that's their reasoning i think they should be making everything public but they will see like 18 separate stars when they focus on one star because the individual 18 segments have to be overlaid on each other like image stacking in a program you might download from the internet if you're an amateur astronomer and you take pictures so it's going to take a very 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 long time you know doing it day by day by day moving these little mirrors by fractions of a millimeter at a time and then taking data taking pictures and seeing by trial and error are we close to what we want and it's a lot of pictures a lot of trial and error and it's the simplest way to do this without encumbering the spacecraft which is already the most complex 
um, deployable telescope or spacecraft ever launched by itself. Um, and tomorrow night, I have a surprise. I'm going to upload another uh, image that's going to absolutely rivet you and which is going to call up all kinds of very interesting emotions. And we'll just leave it there. I will do that tomorrow night as we intro tomorrow night's show. Item number three, that is where is the web telescope. That one you don't have to really refresh. It refreshes automatically. Item number four, I just thought this was so amazingly cool because in all of the public interest in web, the Chinese space program, as you know, not only has a spacecraft roving around on the far side of the moon, it also has a spacecraft uh, on the surface of Mars, the Durong rover, and then it has an orbiter called Tianwen, um, which means technically, you know, questions of heaven orbiting the planet Mars, and it apparently has two or three little deployable subspacecraft where they literally eject one of these little canisters, which basically is nothing but a camera platform. And as it recedes from the main, you know, mothership, the TN-1 uh, spacecraft, which carried the Zerong rover into Mars orbit, they take pictures of their mothership, the, the orbiter, against the backdrop of Mars. That's what item number four is. And take a look at that picture. There's something really intriguing about that picture of Mars set against the blackness of space compared to item number five, which although it has nothing to do with Mars in space, it does have a lead image, which is posted at the top of its article. And that's a, that's a photograph taken by NASA. Just compare those two pictures. The one taken by the Chinese, which is in, in, in the image number, uh, I'm sorry, item number four, and then the image which leads off on the article for item number five, and compare the color in those two Mars images taken from orbit. They're not the same. In fact, as I said to Ron Gerbrand, who's with us tonight, um, what's so intriguing and endearing about the Chinese image is that it looks exactly, in terms of color, in terms of the pastel nature of the color, terms of the salmon color, exactly like Mars looked through Percival Lowell's telescope when Robin and I back in 2003, when Mars was closer than it has, has been in something like 60,000 years by a few miles. Uh, we looked through the Lowell telescope and there was Mars swimming in the dark, you know, through the Earth's atmosphere, which causes scintillation and, you know, burbling and shimmer of the image and Things don't stand still except momentarily. But the color of Mars seen from Earth through a big telescope is not red. It's not crimson. It's not fire engine. It's pale salmon. And the only mission in all the last 50 years of NASA and other nations sending images back from Mars from spacecraft that went there, the only image that I've seen that ever looked the way it really should look is this set of Chinese images in that link posted just a couple, three days ago in the middle of all the excitement NASA is ginning up over the deployment of web. Again, we're getting really interesting data, not, not propaganda, not what they say about anything, but the data itself is so interesting coming 
almost like there was a dual Emily Dickinson Chinese poet running the Chinese space program, giving us the truth, but giving it to us slant. Well, I see that we're almost at the bottom of the hour. It's amazing how an hour can go by so quickly. Um, When we come back, I'm going to introduce our guest. We're going to talk tonight about launching phase two of what has turned from a call to Oumuamua, the first interstellar visitor that we know of to come through the solar system, to now phase two where we are going to from the center of the most ancient observatory on Earth try to broadcast to whoever is sending us in the direction of our own ancient history and origins. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. funny because I think you know I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this whereas now you can't do that there's no such thing so like you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves people are too frightened it's like you know I want to say something but if, what if I use the wrong term but I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was, there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict. You can't do that. And so they went for him. And he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now, what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community. But he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so... I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything. The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you're phoning up the police and grasping on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello everyone, my name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Annetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast.
1970s song that I never thought would, you know, kind of be in such vogue right now. Welcome back to the other side of midnight, where in fact we are in dealing, calling someone. Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft. Who may or may not be an interplanetary craft, uh, things that showed up over the end a few weeks ago notwithstanding but they're certainly sending us intelligent communications they're sending us meaningful numbers and codes and our job I believe with the help of you is to try to figure out who the heck are we talking to and how is it relevant to this extraordinary moment in modern terrestrial history where we're literally at the break point Things can go either way. We need a little help. We are your friends. To be determined. Anyway, my guests this morning, um, in no particular order, are Maria Wheatley, who is our resident expert on uh, dowsing, ancient sacred sites, and, of course, uh, relevant to this morning, uh, Stonehenge. I mean, have we got a story for you there. Then we have David Sarita, who spent most of his professional life doing numbers and devolving codes, looking at the Bible, looking at sacred uh, mysteries, sacred texts, decoding, translating, interpolating. And isn't it interesting that an awful lot of what we're getting seems to be kind of in, in, in his um, neighborhood, in his wheelhouse, as they used to say. Then we have Jonathan Womack, who actually has been involved with extraterrestrial communication in a very up-close and personal fashion for several decades. He does out-of-body journeys. He's encountered interesting beings. And all of that experience takes on a whole new meaning when you can literally turn on a radio and somebody at the other end is telling you very important things. And last but not least, we've got Thomas uh, uh, Mathers with us. Uh, Thomas is a, an Emmy Award-winning producer. He's written music. He has produced music. Um, he also is into codes and frequencies and sacred geometry and has visited many, many sacred sites all over the world, has lived in Ecuador for many years, is now back in Canada on the western edge of the island of Vancouver. And... Um, all of these people tonight, oh, let's not forget Keith Morgan, who in addition to all of the metonymic things for the show, is trying to take over for uh, Cynthia's transitioning to other more important things in her life right now. And he's doing a yeoman service. I want to thank publicly Keith for another miracle tonight. Everything is there. Everything works. Everything's posted. Amazing. And then, of course, we've got Karen who is reiterating again and again and again in, in fiction, in time, in space, decades ago, foreshadowing what we're talking about tonight. Someone is out there, and they are talking to us. 
Okay, let me introduce everyone. Uh, join the party in no particular order. David, you are up, presumably. Yeah, I'm. I'm up. I, I want to say something right away. Okay. The explosion at Tonga. The south latitude is twenty point six zero one. You're kidding. No, I I went on Google Earth and I couldn't believe my eyes. So oh you go my Google, God! The Royal Cubit. The Royal Cubit. Remember, they sent me in my radio both the square of one Royal Cubit at 20.601 inches, which is the Royal Cubit of all Royal Cubits, because it resolves the height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt at 480.69 feet to 20.601 times 280 cubits. And then the remains of uh, of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat according to Wyatt's crew, was 515 feet, and that comes to 618.0.3 inches, which is 20.601 cubits times inches times um, 300, which is what the Bible says. Remember, that's golden number. But what amazes me the most is it's, it's almost like, remember, our response on our radio came before this event at Tonga. So when you go well, wait, wait, wait. to that's, that's the thing I was going to try to ask you this afternoon because you sent me these numbers yesterday before this numbers, thing had blown its top. No, I sent you the, the Royal Cubit we talked about on the last shows, but probably in the order of the response to December 24th, 25th, and 26th, somewhere in there, in my data is this number 20.601 which is the most perfect royal cubit there is because it resolves everything perfectly if you go on google earth and you switch your degrees minutes and seconds to digital Mm -hmm. so you get rid of degrees minutes and seconds and it just becomes digital well it gives you it gives me a sorry it gives you a decimal fraction right it gives you a decimal fraction so 20.601 south latitude is is exactly where this explosion took place. And and I'm beginning this is to think I know, I'm beginning to think and again it didn't hurt anybody. Remarkably, if you see the size of that explosion from space, I would have thought all of California and Hawaii and Japan would have been wiped out. Because you look at the thing, the the shock wave, you know, from the satellite imagery, it looks like, you know, one of those killer asteroid movies, you know, the explosion. And everyone's safe and yet the message is iconically clear, 20.601. I mean, you move your cursor right to where the explosion is, it's right there. So, again, they didn't post the exact, exact epicenter, but it's right there, 20.601 south latitude. Now, the longitude, I'm looking for to see if that showed up in my data. And and another thing I want to point out right away, because Thomas's Thomas Mather's item one is so incredible. Here's the first thing that's so incredible about it. There are nine wave peaks here. And there are no, nine wait, 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 Let's not do this out of context. 
what, 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 what Thomas did was to take the raw data from my digital recording of the chirps on um, uh, Christmas Eve. And John, you know, took the raw data. Then he slowed it down. When we get to John, he'll go through again what he's been doing. He sent the raw data from my computer to Thomas. So this is digital recorded radio to computer to Thomas. And that's what we get in item number one wow. of Thomas's section. Yeah, but did you notice there's nine peaks and there's nine planets in the solar system counting the sun? Mm, okay. I'm not whelmed okay. by that. Yep. You know, if there's no direct numerical connection. It's no, just... there's nine there's nine peak points and Thomas can explain that. So but Yeah, but, but nine I'm is looking... also part of the general you know, twenty seven forms on the on the on the general cubic surface, which is the kind of the core hyperdimensional equation. So Nine could be several different things. It's and then there's ratios between each of these numbers right, that I, right. I'm already looking okay. at. Okay, so. I want to I, I want to do this very metonymically. But let's wait, wait, go back to this thing. This this cannot be overlooked. Well, we're not going this, to. When we get to Thomas, we will have you come back yeah, on. This, hang, well, on hang on, hang on, hang on. I want to go back to. I want you. I need you to go back to explain using item number three in your section. Is it number three? Uh, yeah, item number three. Okay, um, this is a video you shot of the frequency meter analyzing the chirps, and then you recording on a on a TV camera, your phone, I guess. Right. What you see on the meter dial, which is a series of numbers. So walk people how you take those numbers, which you can literally walk through frame by frame by frame and see the numbers changing, then write them down, then look for their square roots, their cube roots, their squares. In other words, tell us how you analyze that kind of data from the chirps. Okay, so right there, if you look at that video, this frequency meter is sensitive from 20 to 21,000 hertz. And, And that's basically the human hearing range. But because of background noise, which can be ambient, really low infrasound, most of the chirps are fairly high numbers, most of them. But if you look at the number on the screen, you take the square root of 424.40, that's 20.601, which is the royal cubic, Mm -hmm. which is the location of the Tonga explosion in south latitude, right? So... The you it's it's accurate to two decimals. So if I take twenty point six zero one inches on my calculator and square it, which just means times itself, it's four two four point four zero one two zero one. You can't see the one two zero one on my meter because it's or it's not accurate to mm-hmm. that many decimals. But that's perfection, like unbelievable. And they also, what's happening on this meter is as it's hearing the chirps from the radio and I'm recording it, I can run back through the video and pull out all my peaks. You can also see in the picture, you see the green light, which is on the meter, the lower, lower part of the image of the meter where my finger is. The green light is on, which means the frequency is coming in. If the green light wasn't on, that would be some, you know, uh, low ambient noise. 
So the the fact that then again they sent me the square of two royal cubits, which is the most common measurement in the Great Pyramid in over 15 places. Peter Lemizurier wrote that they, they used the measurement two royal cubits, which is one of the reasons the, the ancient Egyptians tried to build a two royal cubit rod. So again, was this a pre, this is so sophisticated because the fact that the Tonga explosion is 20.601 south latitude, its epicenter, <laughs> is, is, is in, a, in a very safe way because there's nobody really hurt by this thing. I mean, I don't know how that this thing didn't destroy the world, but it, it seems almost like forces were at play for it. Well, if, if we look at your item number four, which Keith just posted, uh, the shockwave by the, yeah. of the Tonga explosion captured on a satellite looking down, um, this thing is extraordinary. And you're, you're right, it's a miracle that nobody was you know, hurt, let alone killed. And the, and the tsunami it did on the West Coast did not occur, thank goodness. But this is somebody staking, you know, putting a stake in the ground and predicting, you know, this well before, because this is part of a sequence you recorded days ago. Yeah, no, this this is part of a sequence I rec- I recorded uh, over two weeks ago. Like, ah, whatever ah. The December twenty fourth, twenty fifth, twenty sixth. Okay, was. which is part of our Christmas transmission. So again, weekend. if okay, hang if on, this, let me let me let me insert yeah. another important question. Whoever sent us those numbers, remember there was a very classic uh, Victorian scientist named uh, Sir Arthur Eddington who told his Victorian scientist colleagues, you know, gentlemen, you do not have a science until you can express it in numbers. We are drowning in numbers. And yet when you start to wade into the huge pile of numbers someone is sending us, they're not just random numbers. They're incredibly meaningful numbers, and now we can prove they sent us weeks before the event the the long the the latitude of this Tonga explosion. So, question: Did the same guys who sent us the numbers trigger the explosion, or did the guys who sent us the numbers try to warn us of other guys who would try to trigger using this hyperdimensional physics technology? An explosion. In other words, that's the dichotomy. That's the big. Well, remember the, the you know, the God of the prophets in the Bible used the 20.601 inch cubit in Noah's Ark because that's the measurement of the remains on Mount Ararat. So, mm-hmm. so who? When we say who, now we know it's not some somebody fiddling around who's a massive genius sending me all these numbers. Oh, my God. I'm looking at this video. Look at the shockwave on this satellite. I know. The shockwave is – when you see the shockwave, it reminds me of like, you know, one of those end-of-the-world movies where a meteor comes and hits the earth. Like like the end of the movie we're talking about, you know, Don't Look Up. Don't Look Up. Yes. It's just like that, except nothing happens. And it's like the – is this – is the, our member following the, I didn't know 20.601 was going to be a location <laughs> on the grid of earth because it's the Royal cubit, but here it is in action. And then I got a whole bunch of other numbers that point to Southern Egypt somewhere. And I know exactly where, but I'm not going to say exactly where. So are those predictions 
that something is going to be unveiled in, in, in those locations because even though we're looking at, okay, remember, they sent me the speed of light with the decimal moved over. And note that the speed of gravity also is the same as speed of light and also fluctuates ever so slightly. So okay, well, for people sending- who are dying to know what we're talking about because they've never heard the transmissions, here are some of the early bursts you recorded from the December 4th um, events. Okay, so let me play this here. Mm-hmm. This is really incredible. This is the original. Slowed down. And this is when it's slowed down. <laughs> I don't know why that makes me laugh. I, I, I feel intelligence in there. And this... Well, we don't have to feel intelligence. We just look at the damn numbers. I know. And, and, and the fact that the Tonga is one of our numbers oh, is, oh, oh. okay, folks, is it time to wake up yet? <laughs> More than. Are we there yet? More than. Okay, let me, let me dump out. I remember I, when I was a kid okay. sitting in the back of the car going to Texas with my stepfather and my four b- brothers and my mom, and it was 100-something degrees outside, and we said, are we there yet? Um, folks, this is a wake-up call beyond all wake-up calls because what happened today is spot on with what these – that is a transmission response, and it's got the fingerprint of you-know-who um, on it. So it's time to wake up, and if we look where we are at in history, you know, we can clearly see what's, what's going on here is, is – it, it's time to pay attention because the other numbers I got are locations on the earth. And it's interesting, Richard, because if I switch my numbers between latitude and longitude, I've also got locations in the very tip of South Africa. So I've got, hmm. I've got, actually got multiple locations. I'm not going to give out because I got this down. To oh, the no, 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 no. Do not let the bad guys zip in there and take no, away. I'm not going to tell you. I've got it down to the square foot. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh yeah, because my digital series in in in. So you're Google telling me or, now we have to raise money for <clears throat> an expedition? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh great. With camels and camels and water. <clears throat> and uh, it just gets and better and better and better. Okay. <laughs> All right. I want to I want to bring Thomas in. Thomas, yeah. you've done some really interesting work here, uh, David over the moon, with your prelim results. Talk about what your items represent. And then what, where we can go next. Okay. So, well, basically, I mean, uh, John, John had sent me uh, some of the clips that we were reviewing on last week's show. And there was a couple of segments of the clips that when I listened to it live on the show, um, it sounded like some of these segments sounded like reverse, uh, like a reverse audio. So uh, we were trying to do it live on the show, but um, the initial plan was really just to get those original, uh, the original segments from John and then just sort of play around with them, reverse them and sort of do what I was, you know, thinking of in the, and during the show. Um, That being said, in each one of John's uh, segments, 
he had original parts of, and these were taken from your uh, transmissions, uh, Richard. So this, you know, for the for the listeners out there, these were taken from a line out um, directly recorded. So this was not sampled through a microphone or through a speaker. This was direct, a direct line out. So I set up a couple of different uh, analyzers, and if you take a look. <clears throat> Uh, if you take a look at my my items, um, you can sort of see that I've got a couple. I'm I'm displaying the audio. I'm using for for people at home um, just Ableton Ableton Live. Uh, this is on my newer studio computer, so I don't have some of the other plugins that I've got on my my older computer. So these are just stock uh, stock leveling level meters uh, and spectrum analyzers. Uh, that come packaged with uh, with Ableton. So what I did was I, I've got them sort of analyzing different sort of block uh, segments. Um, so it's just different ways of interpreting the sound. Now, the interesting thing is is that when I went to graph it using a uh, uh, instead of a line graph sort of like a, a signs graph, you get these, like a whole bunch of vertical lines. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of see, you can see each vertical line is, is representing different frequencies. Now, what I noticed was when I was playing back the original audio, because there's, I, I have um, some of the, some of the sounds reversed and you can kind of hear it's interesting just to kind of hear the dynamics of each one of the chirps played forward, played backwards. Uh, John had reduced the, uh, the speed uh, by um, at most 200%. Uh, yeah, I and then think another. John has actually reversed some of these. We're going to hear the reversals. I think that, yeah. So, I mean, I'll let, because those were John, because those were John's sounds, um, I think we'll just let him sort of uh, yep. play the ones yep. that were reversed and things like that. So there's no need to kind of duplicate. So we can concentrate really on what I was able to, what I was able to notice, because I think this is actually kind of the most, uh, the most interesting thing. I love visual so, graphs. It, I keep saying I'm a visual yeah. person. That's why I'm a writer. I like to see things yeah. written down. I like to see graphics. I like to see graphs. This is a stunning Printout. Exactly. So the, so the interesting thing, and and maybe what I'll do is for for next week, uh, what I can do is I can capture I'll capture the video segment so that you can actually see these spikes. Mm. Um, I don't want people to I don't want people to take my word for it. I want them to see this with their own eyes because it's something that you would you'll be able to see. You don't have to uh, be somebody that's very experienced looking at audio waveforms. Um, I have been doing this. Well, the first thing to a non-audio person looking at this that this tells me is this is an intelligently generated signal. It's not noise. Well, here's the, but this is the, this is the interesting aspect of it. So um, I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but I'll explain sort of what I witnessed and what I'll capture onto into video so that people can see uh, for next week. So in John's sounds, which he'll, when he, I guess uh, it's his turn to sort of go through and, and do his analysis, um, there's <clears throat> in how he has uh, comprised his samples is part of the original played normally. So this is directly from yours. And then it modified. So slow down, pitch down, or that. So you hear the original, and then right after the original, you hear the slow down, pitch down, and, and he can go into detail with that. 
However, I noticed this with the originals. When I went over to the sign, uh, to the sign graph, so where you're seeing these individual lines going up. So if you can imagine the, the, uh, the, the, the waveform line, the high one, is being, that is kind of the high point of the signal. So that's the peak. And all of those lines are moving, you know, are moving up and down into that peak. Now, what I noticed was when I was zooming in, and it was only higher than 2,000, um, 2000 hertz, so it wasn't, I didn't see any of these very pokey peaks lower than 2000 Hertz. It was, it started at 2000 Hertz and in this analyzer, which I don't know what the maximum was, but I think the furthest peak that I was able to see was actually above 21,000, um, uh, 21,000 Hertz or 21 kilohertz. Now the interesting thing is, is that that's actually beyond um, the audible range, and it's also beyond what most um, uh, speakers and or a sound hertz, equipment which is named people. after the physicist, is really a cycle. So it's 21 hertz, kilohertz is 21,000 cycles per second. Exactly. But here is the interesting thing. We'll just get straight to the point. Each one of these chirps is not identical. This mm. is not so. The so the if you take a look at the waveform. It's not the exact same each chirp, okay? The strange thing is, is that these little spikes that were very noticeable when I was looking at through the analyzer for each chirp were identical. They weren't moving over by like, you know, a, a decimal point of a, of, a, of a hertz. Like they were very consistent. So I, I saw these and when I saw them, I'm like, this is sort of why would like what would be causing this? And then at first I thought, OK, well, maybe this is an artifact because maybe this is something from uh, John's process. But then I was going, well, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense because that's from the original the original noise. So each one of these chirps had an identical sort of pattern to it. Now, with this particular analyzer. OK, we've got 30 we seconds at the top of the hour. Hold it there. My guess this morning, too numerous to mention. We will mention them throughout the morning. I mean, we're doing more analyses of what we got. And what we got is what we should not get. Big question again is from whom and why? And did the folks that sent us a warning two weeks ago about Tonga, were they warning us? Did they know someone else was going to do it? Why did whoever did this, did they do it to pick Tonga which turns out to be exactly at the royal cubit length that David's getting in the numbers. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Other side of midnight.com.
Talk Radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. So welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday night, January 15th, 2022. And we're in the middle of a conundrum. We get advance warning that something is going to occur at 20.601 latitude. And days later, something, a shattering underwater volcano which produces a shockwave rippling out through the atmosphere visible on a satellite hundreds of miles up in color erupts causing a tsunami warning across the entire Pacific Basin that then just kind of incredibly peters out who sent the warning Why was the explosion targeted specifically at the one latitude which corresponds exactly to this royal cubit which has been filling our radio reception from these experimental transmissions and listening efforts for the last month, if not more? In other words, who were the good guys? Who were the bad guys? Who's following the prime directive? Who's trying to intervene? Why are the interveners doing it according to the same math and geometry as the good guys? I mean, the, the, the questions do not stop coming. Ron, I want to bring you in here before we get to some more nitty-gritty numbers. You called me about the tsunami this afternoon. What are your thoughts on all this? Oh, caught me off guard. Let me put the headset on. Hold on. <laughs> Never want to be off guard when you're on live radio should always yeah. be prepared well, I, for it. True enough. Go ahead. Okay, can you hear me? Okay. Uh, well, when you say all this, you mean about the tsunami? Yeah. Uh, okay. I uh, Actually, I did take a couple of cla- oceanography classes at one time, but uh, that doesn't make me an expert. But the uh, this was an undersea quake. And so whatever kind of a wonderful fuss it put up into the atmosphere for those satellite clips are amazing um it uh yeah you never know what direction it's going to go and i don't know what the seafloor looks like around uh it's really tonga is not too far from like american samoa right i believe it's part of it yeah so i don't know what it's like around there but yeah they they i don't think they expected that a uh, 2012 type wall of water was going to come rolling across the west coast but um it uh, yeah I, I I didn't expect it to be a big tsunami. Other than that, I don't know if it takes an outside force to tamp it down. Is what I'm saying. It wouldn't have necessarily 
done that. It would cause a lot more havoc to the east. And I, I don't know if it hit Australia or anything or um, Southeast Asia. Well, I have not know. They got waves. There were waves in Japan. Um, Tonga itself got flooded by the Oh, yeah, tsunami, they got, yeah. Not, nothing like nothing like the tsunami you know years ago um it's it's you know Krakatoa, i'm looking right now on google earth on on my cursor on my map where it occurred it's 20.601 south and 175 point something west mm-hmm. i mean i'm right there my cursor is right there so the when you see the explosion from space and you think of it depends how much rock and real well how much water is displaced yeah mass how mass. much water is displaced in fact you can get big tsunamis with small earthquakes you don't necessarily have to have an 8 point yeah. something no no like in Japan and also the one you know in you know the the big sumatra quake so you, you don't necessarily – it's all about how much water is displaced exactly and how fast and violent that movement is. But in this case, I guess most of the explosion was above the surface of the water because it didn't displace – I mean, it displaced enough water to see waves in, in Los Angeles. They, they saw waves in Los Angeles. They're not big, but they, they're definitely – Yeah, well, they saw them all down the northern coast of California. Yeah. So yeah, our so sources in San Diego went running to the beach. Yeah, they they um, hmm. they did literally. But uh, I I hate to throw a big word in here, but uh, did you do any uh, antipodal analysis? What's a, what's directly opposite there? I wonder what the uh, relationship geometrically is between that Tonga site and um, Las Palmas. Las Palmas. Well, I see. There's Fiji, there's Tonga below the explosion. No, he's talking no, about Canary the Island. Planet. Yeah, no, exactly. What's, what's the antipodal point, which is on you know the Earth exactly opposite 180? You draw a line from the Tonga explosion through the core of the Earth and comes out the other side. Where does it come out? Oh, I, I don't know. That's a Google question, I'll bet. I'll bet. Okay. I'm on Google Earth right now. Let me let me go back, uh, Ron. Thanks for your input there, because you know my <laughs> feeling is this is uh, totally anomalous at several different levels. So let's go back to Thomas. Thomas, the signal. Well, I think, okay. I think, yeah, I think I think just to kind of bridge a little bit of what we're discussing about the the volcanoes. Um, I mean, we are currently approaching the the galactic plane. Uh, within the Milky Way, and uh, we're starting to see in all of the planets some unusual sort of behaviors just because of the increased density of the space that we're going through. So people that are interested in these topics certainly know that we are going to be seeing a lot more seismic activity, uh, volcanic activity, and those kinds of things. We're approaching some kind of strange time, so it's it's happening at an interesting time with what we're trying to attempt to do with these transmissions. There seems to be a lot of overlapping initiatives right now, um, including what some of the space agencies are doing um, and even some of these more grassroots efforts as well. Um, so, I mean, through this exercise, I mean, I guess, you know, 
would it be all that surprising that we maybe get some type of a warning or something like that? So I think it's very important for for everyone to really be taking a look at yeah, but the behavior. Me, uh, I, I think you're missing my point. In order for Group A to warn mm-hmm. David in the numbers, either Group A or Group B had to set off a damn volcano at exactly the Royal Cubit number south latitude, which is an incredibly well, destructive event. But it didn't well, kill precisely. anybody or injure anybody. That's what's so. Well, I think I think continuing with the numbers. So this is this is where we. I think. But wait, first, uh, Thomas, you're saying you're. I, I'm following what you're saying. You're you're saying no, no two chirps are identical, which is like language, human language, as a waveform would not be identical. That would be. Well, no. It, so so if you're if you're recording if you're recording a sound. Right, whether it's a clap, and and a clap or something organic or something acoustic is not a good example because every single time you strike a note, regardless of the instrument, you're never going to have the exact same sound replicated. Now, right. because this is coming from a, di- a digital digital source, you know something that we have to keep yeah, take into consideration is um, you know, like with a digital a digital signal, it's a little bit sort of easier, I guess, to sort of replicate a a uh, a sound. Now, the strange thing is, is that these peaks are happening in the midst of varied waveforms of each chirp. So the chirps on as a surface, if you listen to them, they sound like and i know we wanted we don't want to be kind of going too much into the, uh to comparing this to like a morse code or something but it is kind of like a like that type of a very short signal so the, these chirps are very very it's a very short sort of uh sample so it was very unusual to be able to see these peaks these like and they just looked like spikes kind of piercing through the waveforms and they were the amplitude so the the height of them compared to the rest of the signal was kind of it was just unusual now the thing is is that it's it was very strange to me to see this and and so these were the the at least the visible ones that i was able to see you didn't have any of this behavior any lower than the 2.03 kilohertz so to put this into perspective your audible range 2.03 kilohertz is also uh 2030 hertz okay the the lower the hertz, the lower the sound for for listeners out there. The lower the hertz, the lower the 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 frequency. So a human ear, typically, and this depends on age, and some people have a little bit more or a little bit less, but on average, uh, a human ear can detect around 20 hertz, which is going to be a bass noise. It's going to be what you would perceive as a bass noise, up to. 20,000 hertz or 20 kilohertz. 20,000 hertz is very high. As you get older, you lose uh, naturally. Your your ears lose uh, lose that uh, ability to to hear that high of a sound. But that's the human audible range. Now, anything lower than 2,030 hertz, I wasn't seeing any of these sort of digit. Like if it was a digital artifact you would assume that it would go across the entire signal, mm. not just kind of contained within this higher. So I was able to, and I did it a couple times, and I kept on getting the same numbers. Now, as I said to you, I would say that these numbers are probably about 95 to 98% accurate. So before 
going crazy running with these particular numbers, I do want to use a more sensitive uh, uh, frequency analyzer to view the peaks again and to make sure that they are close. But I am very, um, again, I'm about 95% there that these are the, these were the spikes. So the first spike starts at 2030, then 3,280. So, and, and what I'll do is I'll go back to, it's a little bit easier um, if we start converting to kilohertz. So kilohertz is basically just a thousand hertz. So we start at 2.03 kilohertz, then went to 3.28, 4.95, now the interesting one the 21.2 is interesting because that's something that wouldn't you would not even be like a, a speaker if you were to play this through a speaker that wouldn't even come through most speakers can't be making noise above that 21,000 21,000 hertz that's it's that's very very high now it looked like there was maybe another one beyond that but these were the ones that were the most visible and they were the ones that were identical with each chirp so each chirp waveform had a varied waveform because it was not the same chirp <laughs> but these spikes were poking through each one. It was a pattern that was, once I saw it, I couldn't stop sort of looking at it. So it was the first time in, since we've been sort of analyzing um, this audio where from one of the original sources, I was able to uh, personally myself identify some type of a pattern. And it's definitely something that I think would warrant um, keeping an eye out as we sort of expand the analysis off of what we've already collected and then get into what we're going to be collecting on the subsequent transmissions. Hmm. Well, what's interesting, Thomas, your first two numbers, 2.03 kilohertz to 3.28 kilohertz is very close to golden ratio, 1 to 1.6157. Oh. So, again, because you need to do this finer like you need to get yes yeah more decimals but that is immensely yes. close and you got to remember in fibonacci sequence you're working towards your 1 to 1.618 well that's why that's why that's why i mean i think david this week you and i can work uh, we can work a little bit more closely together i will get the exact frequencies with this but I also mean, this the fact that you got nine and and like you said maybe a tenth and that could have been pluto because we're counting the sun and pluto you have 10 spheres in the solar system so you've got yeah, nine. but I know David. David, I, I, sorry, I'm going to be very blunt. I think you're all wet on that because there are no longer nine planets. Arbitrarily, Pluto was chucked into a you know dustbin of um, dwarf planets. No, no, you got to count the sun, Richard. There's Eris out there. Um, there's no, you have to count the sun. The sun is is a sphere, and there's nine spheres in the solar system i think it's important because the, like as you can see the signal does as you get higher uh like beyond the 21.2 kilohertz i doubt that i would be seeing like another 10 numbers for example so the thing is is that i think that we've got enough numbers i mean there's nine numbers right there potentially there could be a tenth one but let's assume that we're working with a data set of nine numbers right what I'm really interested to see is if there is any type of like a recognizable mathematical pattern from this, 
that is probably going to be one of the, uh, like, I would say just as strong as you getting the numbers of the Royal Cubits and the speed of light. Mm. So I, like what, what these, what these could theoretically be representing in terms of its connection to um, an astronomical sort of uh, basis. I think we can just keep that just aside and just concentrate on the numbers because well, your second that- two numbers are close to 1.16. They're very close. So, your first two and your second two, and then they're going to drop off. Then the ratios are going to get tighter. So I'm just letting you know. And again, mm-hmm. you, if you refine these even more, there, there definitely is a pattern here. The, the, I mean, the thing is, is that I can't, I can't, I mean, I have spent over 20 years of my life looking at audio and I see all sorts of things. Now, obviously, I haven't spent 20 years taking a look at audio specifically to be looking at patterns, but I thought it was very, very interesting that we're seeing a very... Oh, my God. Sorry. You're... Um, 8.25 kilohertz to 4.95 is 1 to 1.66666. And guess what is 1 to 1.6666? The Ark of the Covenant. One and a half by two and a half is cubits is 1 to 1.6666666. Cool. See? Well, so 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 that's so that's the thing. So I think, you know, we oh, can... Oh, 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 this is good. <laughs> we can spend... This is we good. Can, Here we so, go. I mean, these are these these spikes like this is easily like replicated. And what I do want to do is I want to be able to show people like how how we're taking a look at this. This is something that you could do at home if you have any type of audio software. Um, These spikes were super consistent. It was consistent across each one of these each one of these uh, chirps. And it was See, part of what I'm what I'm objecting to, David, for leaping at planets, is because you know um, correlation is not causation, and I would think we're in the vein. Hang on, hang on, hang on. We are in the vein of measurements, standards, physics, geometry. To leap to planets just because you got nine, I just think is is not warranted by the data. Whereas you just proved by doing this in real time on a calculator. That we're looking again <clears throat> to measurements that go back to ancient biblical history and testimony. Yeah, you see, because look, our, our our first number with Tonga and the royal cubit is biblical. Now, when the beauty of ratio is, let's say we disagree on which cubit to make the Ark of the Covenant out of, the ratio is always the same. If I change my cubit uniformly, because because the, the Ark of the Covenant is one and a half by two and a half by one and a half cubits, it's one to 1.6666, which, an Arca, which is an Archimedean infinity ratio. So his 8.25 kilohertz divided by 4.95 kilohertz is one to 1.6666. And that, that is an Archimedean infinity, and it's also the Ark of the Covenant. And so it doesn't matter how you measure the Ark. I can use an 18-inch cubit, or I can use 20.601. And, and hang on, hang on. What was the Ark of the Covenant supposed to be? Exactly. You know what? You know what I say it. Richard? Say it for those of lower in the class. It's a transmitter. It's a communication. An ET non-terrestrial transmitter receiver to God. So if we're looking at the ratio of the Ark of the Covenant in Thomas's numbers, <laughs> and signature is ratio. To me, ratio is everything. The ratio 
of there, there's this beautiful scene, and this is in Jamie James' book, Music of the Spheres, where this goddess Harmony comes into a wedding feast, and she's playing this circular instrument that blows everybody's mind with a whole new music scale. And, and, and she was asked after the wedding, you know, what, what was that music? And she said it's all based on the ratios of the movements of the nine planets. And so it's a completely different scale than a Pythagorean scale. So when uh, you're David? To, Ron, yeah. yes. Sorry. Can I add a little noise in here? Uh, there's something that relates to this. You're talking about patterns and you're finding patterns and you're comparing patterns and you're analyzing patterns. patterns. But I think that they, uh, they may be indicative just of the modulation of the signal. It is possible to, this will make your head itch, but it's possible to modulate noise. You can actually lay a signal on top of a what seems like noise, and as long as you can predict it, you know, what is perceivable as noise, uh, then you can, instead of having a constant tone, like an FM signal, you know, frequency modulation, but there's a carrier frequency, you can use right. a component in the, in the noise as a carrier. That seems clumsy, but if you want to make sure that nobody else can eavesdrop on you, uh, that's one way to do it. And I <clears throat> cannot either uh, confirm or n- nor deny that yeah, there are such things. But you see what I'm talking about? Yes. You might de- so you, you might be looking at effects of the overall process, uh, and so you're compiling the data, but there's, there may be a, another element to look for. I don't... Yeah, here's the thing. Yeah, and here's the thing um, that that I'd like to sort of point out is that these were these were not kind of following the same uh, overall frequency pattern. Like they were definitely they seemed out of place to. No, no, they're not even. Yeah, so it's like like when 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 I'm able to. Well, they don't have to. See, instead of choosh, yeah, choosh, choosh, you could uh, you could use the rhythm of oh Claire de Lune or something. You know, it's like. It's like the uh, it, the electronic equivalent of a book cipher. You know, you just have a, you just pick something so and you know that pattern's in there, but nobody else is going to notice it. Would it be beneficial to potentially isolate those specific frequencies and notch sure. out the rest? I, I'm going to try. I'm going to try to do that to to basically just highlight these specific sort of peaks and notch out. See all, if like, there's some correspondences down. that shouldn't be there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, your ones one point six six six. The beginning ones are very close to the golden ratio. These are not meaningless proportions. They are, they are very well organized. That's what I can tell okay, you. Okay, we've mean, got I about hope... we got about five six minutes to the bottom of the hour. I want to bring in Maria because when we had a conversation discussing how to set up, you know, phase two, she kind of let slip something that I find is extraordinarily important to the meta conversation, which is, she said, in measuring the energies of Stonehenge and the associated ley lines, there is a detectable increase, which I don't know how long it's been going on, but it's like the physics is ramping up, SERP is up. So remember my model, I said that this increased earthquake volcanic activity around the world could be just the physics doing it to the planet. If we're looking at a node, then maybe someone did not do Tonga. It just falls out of the physics because that's a nodal point in a hyper-dimensional reality 
with the Earth as a subset, as a spinning material object that's basically um, exposed to a different physics that has that fall out of the woodwork. Maria, what do you think? Yes, I mean, it's all a, a very interesting conversation, uh, you know, that has centered around uh, Stonehenge and ancient sites as well. So I think Stonehenge is our anchor, you know, to a much wider picture as well as the numbers game. You know, we are on uh, planet Earth and I think these transmissions are key in, in these ancient sites. And, and that's why I've put in for the pictures on your website some really interesting correlations with, uh, with the ley line grid system that myself and a colleague have calculated and when we look at picture number one we see the the whole of the earth interlacing with these very special lays of which Stonehenge and the Great Pyramid is an integral part of that so I think when we start up these signals at the ancient sites they're going to be interconnecting with the whole grid system which I think is quite important okay let me let me Marie for those who are new to the show tell people how to get to your imagery because it's very important you click on tonight's banner sure. at the other side of midnight.com. Click on tonight's banner for January 15th. That will take you to the guest page. Right under the banner on the guest page, you will see uh, fast links to items. Click on Maria. That will take you down to her number one, two, three, whatever. And I guess item number one is a global uh, grid ley line system that comes from sources that are listed on the graphic. Yes, and it's showing the uh, connection between Stonehenge and the Great Pyramid because, you know, hopefully when we uh, start to transmit from the ancient sites themselves, uh, we will be able to realize that there's a huge connection between uh, the Great Pyramid and, uh, and Stonehenge. And also, which is, you know, quite intriguing as well, there's a really good lay connection from the heart of Stonehenge right the way to America's Stonehenge as well. So it's linking these sites with, uh, with energy that flows very fast. It's always been said in geomantic terms that energy follows, uh, flows very fast on a straight line. So it's really increasing uh, in its speed as well. So that's where I think the transmissions are going to go into this lay system. And the, also the, uh, on slide number three, picture number three rather, what we noticed about the, the global lay system and especially the Stonehenge lay, it's also activating uh, a subwater Stonehenge in Michigan, um, underwater Stonehenge that was found not so not so long ago that's believed to be 9,000 years old so, so underneath uh, uh, that point in, in Michigan on slide number three you have uh, an underground an underwater Stonehenge uh, megaliths as well so could it be that these lays and the transmissions are going to activate sites that are, are lost to us mm. in I other like words idea. in other words that's when we do this experiment on the morning of the of the fourth, uh, will we literally light up the ancient ancient global network? Is that where that underwater yes. stone circle is in the pink, where you have the circle? Yes. That that's right. That's right. On uh, on on picture number number three, it's going right by right through those megaliths under the water that have been lost to us. What's the light and long of that? Do you know? Or? <laughs> 
I have a friend in uh, Well, not, not, not offhand, but uh, you could easily Google that. Yeah, I don't know if friend. it's on Google, that particular site. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it is. I saw a documentary some exact. years ago with very murky underwater footage <clears throat> showing these things standing up in a circle. So. No, I saw that too, yeah. I just wanted to know the lot and long of that. There's mm. another aspect to, to this. I don't know if oh, anyone's mentioned, but uh, hi, Richard. But it's been on my mind for the last month or so. I might as well blurt it out before, or I could wait till after the break. I would, I would wait till after the break, okay? Because <laughs> <laughs> we're basically at the bottom of the hour. My guests this morning, again, Maria and David and Thomas and John and uh, Ron and, and Keith, of course, is with us. Um, this is just so intriguing because, again, in the model that globally there is this activation, this energization of a global network of, of uh, interconnected frequencies, physics bouncing around, et cetera, et cetera. Is Tonga doing what it's done now because it's part of a nodal point? Or did someone kind of intervene and do it. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. In the rest of the program, we're going to be talking about phase two, what Maria is going to be doing in the middle of Stonehenge, how we get other sacred sites involved, and how you, our global worldwide audience, can play a pivotal role in determining what's coming, who we're talking to, and what they're trying to say. We shall return. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
and welcome back everyone on this Saturday night. The other side of midnight here in the land of enchantment. Maria, uh, please continue because this is getting really intriguing. I have a feeling we're dealing with a worldwide increase in energy and the sights on the energy lines. If we do the right thing, if we ping the crystal at the right set of frequencies, they could go nuts. Maria? Maria? Maybe she took a yeah. break. Yeah. No, no, sorry, I was, uh, I was muted, so, uh, so apologies about that. And just before uh, Jonathan comes in, because he's going to come in after the break, uh, I'll just briefly say, when we are at uh, Stonehenge, for example, if we go to my picture number four, then we see the line going right the way through, just on the outside, of the Sarsin Stone Circle. So the great thing about working with the trans, uh, transmissions and knowing the ley line system intimately at Stonehenge, I can be right on particular lines linking into particular ancient sites. So it, it's where you are in the monument as well. And when we come to the moon, we mentioned that was, you know, one of the first transmissions got 56. The number 56, which quite accurately uh, Richard decoded as the first phase of Stonehenge linking to the moon. There are more lunar alignments as well at Stonehenge. The uh, southern entrance that's little spoken about, that aligns to the full moon at the spring equinox when the moon is at its zenith, highest in the sky. And also the northeast entrance with the heel stone marks the mid-swing position of the moon's metonic cycle when the full moon rises above the heel stone, which is exceptionally accurate and more so than the summer solstice sunrise over the heel stone. So it's very, very lunar. Very, very. Okay, before we get into the details, Maria, of what you're going to do on the morning of the 4th and how we're going to involve other participants at other sacred sites, not only in Britain, but maybe at Giza. We've got uh, Sam Osmanagic is going to be on tomorrow night. We're going to come back, some of us, and kind of brief him on how the Bosnian pyramids can factor into this. We've got Michael Hill at a Florida Indian Mound site with a new... Do we have anybody uh, in Chichen Itza? No, not yet. Because Chichen Itza is the same, almost the same as Tonga. It's 20.68 Tonga. I mean, the explosion is within 20.68 as well. I mean, the difference between 20.601, 20.68 south latitude is tiny, basically. So Chichen Itza is basically the same south latitude. Well, you know the old cliche, you got to walk before you can run. Uh, if, if we can get four or five interesting sites scattered around the planet for this first experiment, and we get positive results, because everything's going to be recorded, both on audio and video, then we'll have ample, you know, uh, ammunition to launch even more complicated and sophisticated investigations at other sacred sites all over the planet. I think this first one is going to, you know, pun intended. See, remember, Richard, when when I thought they sent me the speed of light, but the Stonehenge is, I'm sorry, um, the Great Pyramid of Egypt is the same number. It's, it's The decimal is 29 nine seven okay right all right it's it's so in a way even though i thought they're sending me the speed of light they're actually sending me the location of the great pyramid and when they sent me 20.601 not only would it be tonga 
but it, Chichen Itza is right, you know, a smidgen away from that number. Within the air bar. Okay, let me let me within let me, the air, yeah. Yeah, let let me let me go to John. John, you've been doing yeoman service on analyzing this stuff and you did some additional things after we talked last week. Why don't you pick it up from there? Uh sure. I I want to start out actually with um just a uh, sort of a big picture comment that these aliens or whoever's sending this signal. ETs. These ETs, remember, they live in the higher dimensions where time is not like it is here. So their perspective is the cosmic war. I mean, that just kind of happened. And now, and here we are on Earth. Earth is Mars 2.0. And this, you know, Richard, you and I have mentioned the Martian planetary AI technology and I've referred to it as rock tech, and, you know, we see that here on Earth. And those blue sarsen stones, those, I mean, there's thousands of pictures from the Martian rovers of beautiful blue stones sculpted of Mm. all these buildings. Uh, It's the same blue stones that we see in Stonehenge. And David talks about calcium in the body. I believe calcium is another part of their rock tech that somehow figures into that technology. Well, it's not just calcium. It's calcium carbonate. <clears throat> and the carbonate is a critical part in the hyperdimensional model in the, in the physics. So it's the, it's the combination <laughs> of these two elements as a compound, calcium carbonate, that literally makes our bone structure resonate to hyperdimensional torsion field influences. And it'd be great if we could get somebody also to go to, I know this is a tall order, but uh, to go to the Balanced Rock in Utah, which is, it's right next door to, remember the monolith from a year? Yes, ago, of course, it? yes. Yeah, it's maybe 10 minutes as the crow flies. I mean, it's right there in this massive complex that is, uh, first I was thinking hundreds of thousand years, but it could be millions of years old. All these sculptures and there's sphinx and, all kinds of amazing I'm things. I'm not so sure they're that old because erosion is a vicious force on Earth. I think they're yeah, in the true. order of tens of thousands, not millions. But anyway, let's not detract. Go back to your sound analysis of the chirps because you have some really interesting new data. Okay. Yeah, last week we went through most of my items, but there were a few at the end that we didn't get to. Number, let's see, eight. Oh, where am I here? Uh, number eight just is a link to the audio visualizer I'm, I've been playing with. It's a 3D visualizer just to give us another angle, another view. Um, you know, we've been using these 2D wave spectrum analyzers that, that give you a 2D look, but this gives you, you know, gives it depth and, and so forth. So uh, I've been playing with this and the first one, 8B, is um, the clicks from December 24th. And in this one, I did not change anything as far as the amplitude or frequency. So these signals, radio signals we're getting, they fall into the low frequency range of radio waves. And in this, in number 8B, you can see the, the table part of it. The flat square, the surface there, that 
contains 20,000 frequencies squeezed into that, that Oh, space. my gosh. Yeah, that's a lot. So I thought, geez, what if we uh, zoom in on that? And in 8C, I just took the frequency range there and I stretched it out. I just kind of grabbed and clicked with my, my mouse and I could just drag the 20,000 to the right and you just see it like an accordion you know you're opening up an accordion and you're getting a, a zoomed look at this so in 8c you see um the frequency ranges from zero to seven or 20 hertz to 700 hertz instead of 20,000. Mm-hmm. and i'm looking like everyone else i'm looking for patterns and i'm expecting to see hints of subcarrier waves that would contain additional information like david was saying a really good way to to test this is to get an old tv an analog uh, crt and uh, you know play this and and have it picked up and see if we get you know an image on the screen of it would be a black and white image and you would hear, Z Kyle, Z Kyle. <laughs> I saw that movie. Yes, I saw that movie. So that's kind of what I'm looking for. Well, this is basically the Morgan model. That if you if you put this stuff through the right transform, the the scanning will pop out every X number of minutes or hours as as it slides through. Am I doing this correctly, Keith? Keith, unmute. Did we lose Keith? Yes, you are. There you are. You're doing it perfectly. Okay. You want to amplify? Um, Yeah, it's the old adage, like, um, which clock is more accurate, the one that's stopped or the one that's running fast? Hmm. The one is stopped because it's right at least twice a day. Precisely, In, infinitely accurate. Yeah, and that's what happens when a picture is a video is out of sync with a lock signal. It passes through, and every so often it locks into place. And you're going to see it. Then it's going to be garbage, and then it's going to come back within that time frame at the speed that it's drifting. Just like through. the Jenkins camera footage in 1924, roughly every yeah. half hour. That's why I would love to get a hold of that original film and see if there's higher resolution images in there. Yeah, well, good luck finding it. As I said, I've got one frame, and I keep forgetting. I will post it next week, okay? One frame. It's very provocative because it frankly looks like an image that was taken by the Curiosity rover in Gale Crater. The figure on the the image from the Jenkins 30-foot-long, you know, fact-style a photographic uh, developed a, a role eerily like a still frame from curiosity taken by TV of an object on the Martian surface, you know, a few years ago, eerily similar. Yeah. Okay. So John, please pick up. Yes. Uh, in 8D, you can see also what Tom had mentioned earlier about these peaks and you can see two of these amplitude peaks that are very similar. This is just a still image from the playback. Of oh, the they video have hair on them. 
They have hair. Meaning they have regular, like 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 a like a comb, teeth sticking up, which are little sub sub frequencies. That now do those stay fixed or do they roll around as this whole waveform moves? That's a good question. So what I did next uh, this week, which I'll be presenting tomorrow night, is I amped up the amplitude so that we can see these peaks so they're much higher and ah. better look at them. Okay. And so you can see, obviously, the, the peaks are going to be much higher, but also these higher frequencies that you see on the table that right now they look kind of flat in 8D, but yes, they, they're raised and they... It just reminds me of structures. I, I don't know. I'm. I know you got structure in there. You and <clears throat> yeah. almost like these these two. Well, listen, listen. You can hear it. This is slow down two hundred percent. Wow, John. So now just, if I can just interject, something that's important to take into consideration here. So when you're slowing down, there's, there's two ways that you're able to, to uh, basically slow down audio. You can time stretch it and you can pitch it down. If you're pitching it down, you're, you're, you're basically not adding any uh, information to the audio signal. When you're time stretching it, the so that kind of haunting sound that you're sort of listening to mm-hmm. is part of the is part of the algorithm that that time stretches. So it's it's a mathematical algorithm that basically will allow um, the, the 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 time the time stretching um, and and so I guess this is a time and pitch. So you're you're adjusting the pitch and the time stretch. So you know I think it's an, I think it's important when we're analyzing the audio, you know, when we're slowing it down, it's really to kind of play around to see if we're picking anything up because these are such short uh, frequency bursts, right? So it it enables us to be able to extend something that's a fraction of a second down to maybe something that's a second long to sort of, you know, uh, do some some further investigation. In terms of of analyzing um, the the frequencies, and by the way, I mean, what John had just mentioned in terms of increasing the amplitude, I had to do the same thing. So I see that on his chart, it looks like the amplitude was was raised by like 12 decibels. Um, I think I increased mine... um, uh, to to accentuate these peaks, which does not when you're increasing the 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 amplitude, um, it's it's really just for it's it's not modifying. It's like increasing the, the contrast in an image. It, it's keeping exactly. It's it's yeah. like increasing the contrast, but we're not inserting any more uh, data or information to mm-hmm. the to the signal. So the reason why out of the and again, I mean, I was just further analyzing some of the segments that John had had picked out. Um, I think what I'd like to do is really go back to the entire um, sort of recording that we got from, from you, Richard, to sort of see if this is, uh, if this is consistent all the way through. If there's, if we see a consistency, because one thing that was really interesting was that the amplitude of these spikes remained totally consistent. 
So it, it was it was really sort of odd. And these were the 2.03, 4.95, exactly. So the amplitude, even though I increased the entire amplitude of the entire signal up by 10 decibels or 12 decibels. Um, and for those of us who were, who were stuck in English, what's a decibel? <laughs> I mean the the decibels are basically just a, it's the the amp, it's it's how the amplitude the loudness of the it's the multiplication the factor but what is it yeah uh, well I believe I believe uh, your decibel range is logarithmic yeah uh, I, 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 know, I know it's not yeah. linear yeah so I, I I can't go into the technical into the technicalities I'm I'm not familiar with the well would twelve decibels be like ten to one twenty to one fifty to one Ron, maybe yeah. I, I don't know what the actual ratio would would be, uh, but I mean, when you do go from like, you know, I'm double checking that for you right now. I just, yeah, you know me too well. Yeah, yeah. this yeah. is why you need a library computer. <clears throat> now the so thing as is, soon as you have, as soon as you have ratio, you have building structure. Actual, you can build a rectangle, for example, like the Ark of the Covenant is a rectangular box, right? So it's one to 1.6.8 box. So it's, you can start, I mean, looking at Jonathan Womack's data here, you're starting to see the beginning of structure. And that means, I mean, it, I, mean I, I may be stretching here, but what if the Ark of the Covenant is what's transmitting all these signals to us and it's somewhere on the planet? Because, <laughs> because it sent us its ratio. And then it, the and it sent you where it is. In the lat longs, we can't and talk we about. we know where it is, but I'm not going to tell anybody those numbers. Wouldn't that be anyway, cool? <laughs> you know, when you start, when yep. you start okay, to guys. one to one is a square. Okay, a hang on, hang on. Ron, Ron, you have some numbers? Yeah. Deci- yes. Uh, decibel is a, is a holy unit. I add the word holy because it's used for expressing the ratio between two things. And why did they just... Why does it do that when you're in the middle of reading a sentence so that you get it right? Uh, yes, between two physical quantities. Damn, now I dropped the phone. Hold on. We're there. We got it. We got it. We're there. Usually amounts of acoustic or electric power or for measuring the relative loudness of sounds. One decibel, which is 0.1 bells, B-E-L, uh, equals 10 times the common logarithm of the power ratio. Translation. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's everybody's hair kind of frosts over at that, but the um, that's so why we're headed to so the one, other page. One decibel is a factor of ten. Yeah, so it's it's like a Richter. It's mm-hmm. like the like a Richter scale. So, so like twelve would be from, huge. Yes, yeah, a again, decibel like, is a tenth of a bell. Yeah. Yeah, but again, like we're increasing the so we're increasing the decibel. So we're increasing the amplitude digitally. So we're not color. We're not coloring the sound. There's no other. Like if we were to use a traditional. We're preserving the original waveform. Exactly. So and and with the with the specific purpose of being able to more clearly see the frequencies. Mm-hmm. So kind of touching with kind of seeing what what uh, David was touching on, and this is why I think this week we'll definitely dive into really figuring out what the precise. Uh, frequencies were for each one of these peaks that I was able to identify. See, what I'm, what I'm getting at here is for those folks that are incredibly skeptical and think you guys have 
you know, you got to stop smoking what you're smoking or give it to me, that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. We're looking at signals that are Always a, been my motto. A, artificial, <laughs> trying to ignore the noise. A, artificial. B, incredibly complex, built in layers, like a, like a Russian doll or a Russian egg, where there's a signal in a signal in a signal to impart a tremendous amount of information in a brief period of three-dimensional time and is taking us a long while to kind of assemble the tools to extract this multi-leveled, incredibly complex, multiplexed information content. It's like they're embedded art. You see yes, from exactly. far away, you see, and then you get closer and closer. Yep, yep. But I think the patterns are, are important to identify because the pattern, if we're able to see sort of like using Occam's, raz- Occam's razor, if we're able to sort of see patterns that relate back to uh, special mathematical um, numbers or combination of numbers or ratio of numbers, then that would then, I would say logically, would then sort of lead us to, that's like the, the beginning part of the map. So if Well, seeing, exactly. And David tripped yeah. over live on real time on the other side of midnight tonight, what those nine frequencies you pulled out of the digital data I recorded on the Christmas Eve transmission are talking about, and it's ratios, <clears throat> again, sacred ratios in, in entombed, encoded, immortalized in ancient terrestrial measurements. Exactly. You, when you've got, when you understand, like if you go to the book of Ezekiel and you see the entire measurements, I mean, an angel would come down holding a six cubit staff, for example, and everything is measured perfectly. And there are ratios in all those measurements that, that are very significant because a ratio sets up a harmony or a disharmony. In fact, you can, I actually did a project where I took all the ratios of the Ark of the Covenant and turned it all into sound. I mean, you should hear what it sounds like. It's, 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 it's incredible thing just to listen to, because then once you build in your ratios, you can add in octaves that are each octave pattern is the same ratio, but it, it's there. You're, you're making leaps in frequencies. And I can also, because I see the golden ratio in Thomas's data, I mean, it's clearly what it is. It, it's not 100% perfect, but his numbers don't have decimals, so, so they just need to be finely tuned. Then, then you start to see that part of the message is a structure. And that's why if you got a TV, an old type of CRT type TV, you, you might actually see it. And you can almost see it in, in you know, um, Jonathan Womack's data. You almost yep. see the structures forming well, I think, there. Yeah, I mean, I think what we can also sort of compare what we're trying to do with the sound analysis um, to, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Alan Green and how he decoded uh, the cover, the original cover of William Shakespeare's sonnets. And No, but it sounds fascinating. Okay, so for for anybody out there, um, it's really a super interesting watch. There's there's a video that sort of breaks down. So on the original cover of of the of the actual original document of Shakespeare's sonnets, okay, the, all of the lines, the 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 periods, and everything, you can mathematically 
um, basically break this down has on this one this one cover of this of this uh, of this document has all of these in very important astronomical numbers and mathematical numbers, some of which had not even been discovered at that point, and they are like extremely extremely accurate. It's so so that has kind of been what's been in the back of my mind in that. You know, if we're able to identify some type of a pattern that then leads us to, uh, you know, identifying some type of a mathematical or astronomical uh, uh, constant or some type of, you know, for example, the golden ratio or pi or, or these other types of, of important ratios, um, then it's to me sort of that that evidence that is really kind of showing us that we're leaning into the right direction. And in terms of why and how we're sort of receiving this, it's because we're tapping into this ancient network, which, again, I mean, what I think the listeners need to remember is that all of us are sort of looking for patterns and looking for numbers that are very ancient. These are, these are ratios. These are numbers. These are, you know, very special things that I think are beginning to describe a little bit more of this uh, holographic nature of the universe, this, this sort of deeper sort of construct, mathematical construct well, of the fabric. Well, ratios are eternal. Reality. You know, not numbers, exactly. it depends on how, on how you set it out and stuff, but that's why I, let me stick in the final word on the decibel thing. I hate to leave the audience hanging. Uh, if something's three dB more, it's twice as much. Ah, and the normal yeah, the normal level of speech no, is like no, 60 no. dB, unless you're listening to me or somebody, uh, uh, or six bell, as it were. Nobody ever says that. That's normal speech, uh, which is six okay, powers. We, of are, at the, so we all, are at the top of the hour. Okay, that's all. So everyone call. Okay. <laughs> Bye. My guests this morning are too numerous to mention. We'll hit them again when we come back at the top of the hour. We're going to go back to to John who has something really surprising that occurred at the very end of last week's show. And we're doing it again this week. We've got results. We also want to go back to Maria, and I want her to now walk us through the protocol for how do we set up to do an extraterrestrial transmission from the center of the most ancient observatory known on Earth. You're on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. If you touch that dial now, you're crazy. She'll return. The other side is midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. 
listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. It is the witching hour. I wonder where that term came from. I'll bet we can ask Maria and she will know. Here in the land of enchantment, the witching hour, it is midnight. It is now Saturday night, Sunday morning from the land of enchantment on the other side of midnight. And what I want to do is I want to go back to John because John did something that we discussed at the very end of the time we had last week and we ran out of time and we couldn't do it. Because what John did is he reversed the streams. He took the chirps that we've been listening to, the raw data, slowed it down, and then did some other things which reverse it in time. So we're going to listen to the last part of the chirp first and run it backwards and see what we hear. And we're all going to react to it for the first time because we haven't heard this, except John, of course, has. And I'm going to ask him what he thinks he's listening to, and then everybody else, what they think they're listening to. So, John, take it away. Sure, yeah. As Tom was saying last week, it it sounds almost like these chirps are being played backwards. So, uh, Richard, do you want to play the... No, I don't trust my machine tonight again. It's acting funny. (laughs) So if you can do it... I can go ahead and play it here. Um, Let me bring it up. Okay. Here we go. Sounds like an extraterrestrial machine gun. This is slowed down. This is still forward speed, right? Backwards. Crazy, huh? Well, tell well, us what the, we... the interesting thing is that the actual, yeah, just if I can sort of just jump in here. The, the interesting thing is that you can hear on the reverse one sort of the, the the ambient noise or some of the time stretching um, to my ears, again, sort of a trained uh, musician and music producer's ears, you can hear that it's backwards. But some of those actual, like the actual chirps, they they don't sound like a reversed, a reversed audio. It's, it's, it, it does sound quite interesting when the specific chirps are, have been reversed like that. Can you Sounds play it, like speech. John, can you play it again and tell me, you know, kind of describe it because I missed the reverse part. Uh, yeah, you have the clicks first. and Well, let's hear it and then you tell us as we're going along what we're hearing. Okay. 
These are the clicks from December 24th. Now it's going to slow down. So the third part, which again I missed because you didn't tell me where it was, that was the reversed section slowed down. Well, the whole clip is backwards. So oh, you didn't tell me that. I thought you were playing the original, and then you would reverse it. Oh no, you know, I'm, I'm just playing. No, miss the, him. Uh... See, this is why people who do the work. Well, no, it is the, the original. No, but Richard, it is the the it's the original, then the slowed down, and then the slowed down reversed. Yeah. So those the yeah. So those the and what's really interesting is that when you when you hear it slow down and especially with it reversed like this, you can hear that each one of the chirps they're quite different from each other. Like yeah. when they're happening quickly, you would you wouldn't really kind of tell that there's much of a difference. Right. But when they've right. been slowed down, so that's what really reinforces why. And I hear that sawtooth rhythmic structure in the reverse slow down version, if I'm remembering correctly. It's like you can almost hear the individual sub pulses. Yeah. Play it again. Okay. This is original raw. This is slow down. That's not noise, that's a harmonic. Do you hear that? That very rapid staccato at the top when you reverse it? Yeah. Yeah. That's substructure, that's subfrequencies, that's what. You know, um, Thomas is picking out in his detailed frequency analysis, and we're going to have more accurate data in the next week, right? Yeah, so I think the, the important next step is to get the precise values, the frequency values for each one of these different points along the frequency. And, and, and what I'll also try to do is notch out all of the other frequencies and just sort of have those ones together, see if we have something, something there. But I think the important thing is, is that there's something very consistent through that. And it's not, doesn't seem to be sort of following too much with, with the, 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 how dynamic the other waveform in the signal is. And I'm, I'm curious to, to really take a look at those numbers and see if, you know, a frequency is a frequency. I mean, it's, it's a cycle. It's a cycle per second. So, I mean, it's, it's see what, it's what's, pretty... so, what's so mind blowing to me is that we started out with the standard SETI paradigm. Okay. Borrow a powerful radio transmitter together, a message composed of frequency and geometry and measurements and ratios, send it into space, listen for the response record the response, and try to decode what the senders are sending us. And in the standard SETI paradigm, 
the senders will tell you about themselves. In this case, the senders, our audience somewhere out there, and out there may cover a multitude of dimensions, they're sending us information about the senders. They're sending us information about us, but not us now, us at the beginning of written history and in the ancient stones and circles and sacred sites, the beginning of extraordinary megalithic architecture encoding this same information. And they're saying, look at your own ancient origins. The answers are there. That's very not, well put. That is and not bad at all for a message. That's very well put. It's time dilation. But it's, it's also that we lost something about perfection in those structures because the structure is a resonance. Like in the same way, when we create a crystal oscillator, you know, when we cut a piece of quartz to generate frequencies, the dimensions of that quartz determine the frequencies that it will output. And in the same sense, the dimensions of a semiconductive and conductive building, temple, um, works the same way. It, it will generate frequencies based on its dimensions. And, and it's not only the dimensions, it's the geometry. So there's something that humanity benefits from, from living within a certain radius of those geometries like I documented in the Washington Monument. The second the monument goes up, our whole world changed and mm. all the inventions occurred within a certain radius of that monument. So the, they're, they're telling us there, there's an importance to these perfectly measured and built structures. There, there's a reason for it. In a way, they're musical because frequency is music is frequency. And music you know, begets emotions and sensitivities and feelings and intuitiveness more than anything that humans have developed. I mean, if we had a world without music, we would have a, a, a world without most emotion. Oh, my our God. Emotions, yeah. Our well, emotions also, would be very primitive. Yeah, I also think that our physical reality is, is basically a, all sorts of different types of vibrations. That's right? a hyperdimensional that, model. Okay, exactly. we, we only got about uh, 40, no, 50 minutes. Maria, you're going to have the floor. Yeah. I, want, I want you to start at the beginning because um, let me give you a little backstory. When Robin and I were in, in uh, Britain and I was trying to measure Stonehenge with the Accutron, I was able to get on a path about 20 feet from the center, and it was lightly raining. It was sunset, and the, the English Heritage Guards – in their bright yellow slickers were gathered all around looking at the screen, seeing all these amazing measurements that I was getting. And I said, Oh, let me go 20 feet over and do this in the center. And they all said with one voice, no. So I want Maria, you to talk about English heritage and the bureaucratic hurdles you had to overcome even to this point to get to where we can actually talk about doing this transmission live from the center of Stonehenge and a few other places in the monument on the morning of the 4th and how you accomplished a small bureaucratic miracle in the last couple of weeks to make us able to pull this off. 
Yes, I mean, Stonehenge is out of bounds, the centre for most people on public access. So you had public access, so they deny you going into the centre of Stonehenge. You can only walk around the perimeter from the heel stone around the outside of the stone circle. And what I applied for was um, personal access to the centre of Stonehenge. And it was quite intriguing what unfolded because I was given one date, first of all, and I mentioned that to you. And you said, oh, that's ages away, Marie. <laughs> so I tried then to get another date and it fell on February the 4th. And February the 4th is a very sacred day in the ancient calendar, in the ancient megalithic calendar. It's called Imbolc and it's part of an eightfold year cycle of eight sacred days that the, the ancients believed that the veil was very thin on that day between this dimension and the next, this world and the other world, for example. So the day that we have chosen for this experiment at Stonehenge is the most sacred day in February. Which is your, which is, which is, hang on, which, which is your diagram number seven in Radio yes. with Pictures. Yes, it's, it's called the Eightfold Year because it's timed astrologically. So, for example, on February the 4th, it's when the sun, astrologically speaking, is at 15 degrees, the, the middle of the sign of Aquarius. And it, it's a time when the, the days are getting lighter, so the ancients would have celebrated that now at Stonehenge, at the heart of Stonehenge, where I will be. Also, by the great Trilithon, the holiest of holies at Stonehenge, as well as the altar stone, it also is an in-bulk alignment. So we're going to be right on an alignment, an ast astronomical alignment at Stonehenge. And the intriguing fact, I think, is a clue about Stonehenge going from the moon to the earth. If we look at the diameter of the blue stone circle. So we mentioned phase one was to the moon and it was 56 stones uh, now called the Aubrey holes. The ancients uh, uprooted those stones and made them into a blue stone circle. And if we use the uh, measurements by the late geomancer John Michelle, then he says the diameter of that blue stone circle is 79.5 feet. Now, if we change that to miles wait, wait, and multiply you, it by... You mean the original in phase one? Uh, no, in phase one, it was 56 blue stones going around the outside of the henge, and they got and then changed to a blue stone circle phase two. Oh, and that's what Michelle is referring to. Stonehenge. Okay. Yes, and if we use that, his uh, measurements of seven. 9.5 feet, change that to miles and multiply it by 100, we get the near diameter of planet Earth. Oh so they encoded the, the planet Earth in that. So I feel that's very important as well. And as John has previously pointed out on Mars, uh, his of, of observation was a link to the kind of blue stones there. They're also the blue stones three times more magnetic than any other stone in the British Isles has been pointed out by previous researchers. So there's a lot of kind of things going on symbolically. Okay. I'm going to be there uh, at, at the heart of Stonehenge on the 4th. I want to point out that it cost you £100, $200 in the current conversion rate roughly, be nice if we could re reimburse Maria. Audience, pay attention. Contact uh, donate button is over on the left on the computer. 
We need a little help with this if you want to participate in history changing. Item number two, you're going to be spending one hour. They give you that $100, $200. They give you one hour. Now, in one hour, we can do a lot. And so I would like us to kind of, um, you know, blue sky what you should do and where you should visit in the monument. My first recommendation is don't do the center. Start with the Aubrey holes and literally walk the circumference and transmit, listen, record, transmit, listen, record, transmit, listen, record as you make the complete circle. And you can probably do that in, you know, what, five or 10 minutes or something like that. And then go other places like the center, like the triathlon, but the Aubrey holes, since they sent us yeah. those bluestone original phase one geometries, that's where I would start. Well, yeah, vegan things about the builders of phase one, which I will definitely do the uh, Aubrey holes, is this. It was the, not the first stone was standing. They buried a stone beneath uh, bluestone number one. So it's like an antennae going really down into the ground. It's a little known fact. You've got a quartz-like stone buried beneath stone number one. That's how they started the building process at Stonehenge. Mm. So I will begin with where the ancients put that first stone beneath the ground and then walk around uh, the Aubrey Hulls uh, phase one of Stonehenge. Okay, now here's another point. The physics has what we call chirility. It has a left-handed and right-handedness. I found that, David, with the radios. If I hold the radio with the left hand, it will click in a certain pattern. If I move it to my right hand, it changes clicks. It does different things. So I think, Maria, you need to walk around the holes both counterclockwise and clockwise. Yes, 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 I will. And uh, if we could arrange for me to have... Uh, you know, some uh, training on how to use it, that would be wonderful because I will. Because again, in paganism, you would walk around Stonehenge, first of all, clockwise, the path of the sun. And then uh, in the, the ancient ways, you could go Widdishan, which is uh, counterclockwise around the stone circle as well. Mm. And it'll take about 15 minutes to walk. It's quite large, the, the first phase of Stonehenge. Yeah, well, David. I, I just did I just did a calculation. If you use 144.1 cubits, using the royal cubit to inches, the diameter of the circle would be 78.74 feet. That's incredibly close to your <laughs> 79 feet. Yeah, that's, that, that's remarkable, actually. That just goes to show that when we use these sacred numbers, they relate to the monuments themselves. So that, that would tell me, now the 144.1 corresponds to the 432, because 144.1 yards is 432 feet, by the way. So, and, and, and of course, a, a megalithic yard is something different. But um, the, the point is, I think we should use 144.1 and 432 mm-hmm. as transmission frequencies because of the correspondence in the circle, because it's so accurate to, I mean, I'd like to see the diameter of that circle perfectly, because sometimes they round it off to 79 feet. It might be 78.7 uh, feet. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, that was the calculations of a geomancer, but if you went to, for example, Professor, Professor Richard Atkinson, he would say it's 75 feet, but he went there and measured it in a particular way and came out with the 79.5. 
Yeah. So, yeah, you're amazingly close there. And also there's your inner circle and there's your outer circle, depending on the thickness of the stones. And so there's other things to consider. There's also the center of the axis of each stone, the diameter of that. So there, there are several diameters. I mean, you're definitely within range of the 144.1 to, to so, a high degree. Maria, if you're saying it takes 15 minutes to walk around once, you already used half an hour of your incredibly precious time to do the clockwise and counterclockwise, which I think is really important. Yes, what, it is. What will you do in the next half hour? In the next half hour, that's when I will go into the uh, site of Stonehenge itself. And again, how I take people into the monument is in the correct manner, in the footsteps of the ancestors. So I'll be coming down the avenue and entering through what's called the two uh, entrance stones. Most people follow the security guards into Stonehenge and just walk in at its weakest point, whereas I'll be walking in at its strongest point. Mm. Then I'm going. Then I'm going to walk through the bluestone circle and go to the near centre of Stonehenge, which is the altar stone, and then I'll move on to the greater Trilophon. Based on the measurements for the Ancatron that uh, that I got at Stonehenge with Robin and at Chichen Itza, I think we ought to plan for you to activate the radio even before you get into the monument because we found within five miles of the Kukwakan Pyramid, I was picking up amazingly strong signals from the pyramid five miles away. Wow. So I would have a seamless kind of like runway where you start far away and record everything. We, we should, David, we should mock up a certain kind of five-minute transmission so it's, it's more like the <clears throat> redundancy as opposed to the content, and we create something brand new compared to a muamua which is relevant specifically to Stonehenge, and Maria can be involved in creating that. And then we transmit, record, transmit, record, recording everything, but do it redundantly again and again and again as you go from well outside to inside. And what if yes. we got you, Maria, um, I think it was Georgia Lambert that mentioned the Kilner screens that these you know, I, I said it'd be cool if there was some glasses that could let you see the energies coming off of the, hmm. these monuments. And uh, this Dr. Kilner had developed this um, technology that allows you to see auras. So um, these Kilner screens are colloidal coated dye-treated glass plates. So, yes, we, we've got a similar thing over here, Jonathan, that was uh, invented by Harry Oldfield. And I've used uh, those to photograph the uh, energies coming off the stone, uh, of which I measured as well. Hmm. So we, we have a very similar thing. But where I've been interacting with Stonehenge for three decades now, uh, I, I really do know the kind of when the energies change and, and when they dip down and, and when they come out much well, you stronger. Can, you, you, because well. of, your, of your dowsing background, you can feel it. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. I mean, it's uh, it, it, for example, Stonehenge came into a massive reboot in 2010. Okay, now that's, it's an interesting to note that in 2010, when you had private access to Stonehenge, which I've got for our experiments and transmissions, you could touch the stones then. Ah. After, after the reboot, and a lot of people felt it, not just myself, you were no longer allowed even to touch the stones 
in uh, private access. I'm banned from touching the stones, and if I go very close to the stones, a security guard will come my way and ask me to get out of the auric field of the stones. Wow. They really are trying to press. Obviously, somebody on the inside picked up a major change and said, we can't have any more of that. Uh, exactly, because you know when the when you have a reboot at Stonehenge, so to speak, when it kind of really does send out its uh, energy, the Greater Trilithon, which still stands, beautifully uh, dressed and sculptured, uh, very flat lozenger-like. You go near that, people were getting what they believed and interpreted as downloads, masses of information coming uh, down to them. That's when English heritage. Uh, stop to go in too close or touching the stones, especially touching the stones. You you will be thrown out if you if you touch a stone or go too close to them. What if you have one of the guards touch the stones and then you touch him? <laughs> uh, well, uh, you, well, e- exactly. And and some of one of the stones. The interesting thing about some of the way they're sculptured at Stonehenge. And I will be going very close to this stone. It's called Stone Number Sixty. Uh, of the uh, horseshoe feature of uh, trilithons at Stonehenge. It's been sculptured in a particular way to look like a spine. And I call it the spine stone. Mm. Now, uh, archaeologists will say... With the so-called 33 tetrahedral vertebrae. That's what it was. What it exactly looks like. It looks like a spine, a couple of spines going down a stone, which archaeologists interpret as they did mistakes, bad tooling. Oh. But everything at Stonehenge <laughs> had meaning. Nothing was by chance. It's amazing how dumb they were to create such an incredible <laughs> monument viewed from the conventional academics. Wow. Yes. Okay. Uh, someone's Tom Maria. I just want. Yeah. I just, oh, that's me. I just. I, I just wanted to say, I, everybody there? No. A lot and long of Stonehenge, because that's what they've been sending us to as tones oh. to run through her radio at the 144.1 and the 432. So I'm just looking at the, the digital numbers on Stonehenge is 51.1788 north and 1.825989 west. So I can convert those into binaural tones is what I'm saying. That, Which, that of course, we'll tell the guys out there we're talking to, message received. We're broadcasting from where you told us to go. Right. Well, that's, right. Right. that's why, Richard, I think, uh, and this is, I received all of the, um, the specific frequencies from David uh, yesterday evening. So for next week, uh, we'll start constructing some of the tone sequences Super. Um, that will be broadcasted. What would be interesting is if we could mathematically um, infer some type of a scalar system related specifically to Stonehenge. I think it's important that we identify uh, the, the numbers that we've gotten that David provided me were very specific to uh, the Great Pyramid, um, which I think is just it is, is important to kind of put that out there because, again, we're broadcasting on, on frequencies that are connected to the sacred I, geometry. I, I really believe, and we've got basically a minute to the bottom of the hour here, um, I think we ought to in, somehow encode Alexander Tom's work and the megalithic yard. Yeah, the frequency of, remember, the, there's the not only the megalithic yard, but there's the rod. Mm-hmm. His whole we, measurement system, because yeah, I can... you've got the megalithic large and the megalithic rod. Very important. The, the megalithic rod has... 
but that's a really high frequency. That's a radio frequency, the megalithic rod. But it, um, I remember calculating okay. it last week. I've got to look at that again. The megalithic rod. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guests this morning are in the middle of planning our expedition to Stonehenge. We have got to somehow incorporate the Great Pyramid in this. And when we come back, David has a very interesting story to tell, uh, kind of anonymously. We're not going to mention any particular individuals, but there's a very peculiar story about our efforts to try to involve the Great Pyramid, which is on this ley line, as you can see from Maria's item number one, into the experiment. And then, of course, we're going to get tomorrow night to Sam Mismonagic and give him the same kind of briefing as to what he can do at the Bosnian pyramids. And you may remember that from the apex of the Pyramid of the Sun, which he's kind of arbitrarily called the greatest pyramid there in Bosnia, there is this bizarre radial beam extending vertically into space, emanating from inside the pyramid, and no one in the mainstream can figure out how the heck it is created. More of this momentarily. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. So on the 4th of February, we're going to plan a hyperdimensional transmission and record everything, beginning from Stonehenge, the most ancient observatory known on planet Earth, which came in major phases, phase one, two, three, separated according to the radiocarbon dating by thousands of years. In our message received back from the moon bounce experiments on the 18th of December of last year. God, it's already last year? Wow. We were pointed directly to this monument, which, according to Maria's diagram, item number one in her section tonight of Radio with Pictures, lies just north of the Great Pyramid. And so, per David's contact with someone in Giza, in Cairo, we attempted in the last few days to reach out and involve this individual in the experiment to involve the, 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 the perception of the activation of this ancient sacred network with perhaps the two most important 
beacons on that net, Stonehenge and due south. And then something very strange happened. David, take it away. Unmuting helps. <laughs> Sorry, are you talking about the locations? That no, appear? the guy, the guy, the reaction of your, quote, friend, unquote. Oh, he said he wouldn't do it. Well, no, 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 good, good grief, terrible storyteller. Start at the beginning. How did you broach it? What did you say? How did he respond? You told me it was weird, weird, weird. Well, this was the individual that... We don't need to, Jim- we don't need to, you know, he did something with you before, right? Yeah, he... He videotaped the Great Pyramid. When if you we want to be specific, we don't want them to be able to find him. Gosh. Right. Exactly. You don't know how That's to skulk I'm... around as a spy. Come on. Right. We don't, we, anyway, he seemed afraid to do what I asked him to do, which was to use the radio, you know, at the site of the Great Pyramid. and and um, He wouldn't give you an no... explanation. He just said, no, no, I can't. No. And I, I told him, do you, do you know anybody else? And I said, I'll pay you. <laughs> And he still said no. Okay, let me ask a very important question. When he sent you this video, did you post it on the web? Yes. See, that's how the security forces found him. And that's why I think he got a visit. Because Mm -hmm. what he got was so bizarre, it should not be public knowledge. In other words, there's an in crowd, the deep state, and there's all the rest of us. The deep state mm-hmm. does not want us to know this. This is why English Heritage is charging an arm and a leg to give you a limited hour, and you can't even now get close and touch or feel the auras. In other words, they're trying to clamp down, clamp down, clamp down, clamp down, and someone upstairs is trying to give us the keys to the kingdom to open the system again. So we need to find someone in Cairo. They don't even have to be at the Great Pyramid because, again, when Robin and I measured – the Chichen Itza complex, I was literally put under house arrest when they saw me opening a laptop. Federality swooped down and forced me to stand for two hours in front of the administration building, which was a thousand feet away. And I'm standing there cheerfully, you know, looking very bored and whatever, but I'm recording data all the time because the fields of these structures is literally measurably miles if not larger across that's how your model of the washington monument works when it was constructed it erected a field over a major portion of the united states i I will be at the great pyramid uh, on the next sacred uh, date of the 21st of march i will be uh, in egypt going to lots of temples perfect uh, oh my god We'll do it then. That's perfect. Yeah, but we'll lose the simultaneity of her being in Stonehenge. We'll use that, yes. But I'm just saying I can take measurements for you. Uh, well, then year. the question is, go, let's go back to Britain for a second. You and sure. my, my recommendation will have colleagues helping you. You will have yes. someone filming you and recording everything that happens during your expedition. You will have another colleague with a second radio at another sacred site in Britain to test my, it's going to light the network up model and talk a bit about that. 
Yes, that's right. Uh, you have a, a perfect stone circle, which has retained its circular shape, uh, whereas Stonehenge and Avebury and places like that are somewhat ruinous. They don't retain their circular shape, called the Rollwright Ring in Oxfordshire. And it's been the most studied uh, ring in terms of getting ultrasound, infrasound, and a lot of experiments have taken place there. We know where the magnetic hotspots are at Rollwright. So I've got a, another team that will be there uh, at dawn on February the 4th uh, as well to take measurements from that stone circle, which, uh, like I say, it's uh, part of a wider complex. You've got a much older monument there called the Whispering Knights. And just across the road from the Rollwright stone circle, you have a stand in stone, a bit like you have the heel stone, it's called an outlier to Stonehenge, you've got the identical uh, design there of the king stone is an outlier to the Rollwright ring. So we can take measurements from different points within the complex. Mm, this is super cool. See, did you see... Hang on, hang on, I'm trying to be metonymic here. So what we can do, Maria, since you're going to be in Egypt a month later, how yes. amazing is that? We set up another experiment with your colleagues getting another access to Stonehenge and doing the same thing you're doing, duplicating the test, the experiment, the results, while you're simultaneously somewhere in the vicinity of the Great Pyramid measuring, recording what you get on the handheld radio. Yes, and we can also go one step further as well, because like on my picture number four, we can be bang on the lay system and take measurements off the lay system ah. as well. So we can be really uh, in situ, so to speak, to see is the whole global network being ignited by these transmissions, as it were, and gaining strength and momentum. Wow. Well, if I can, if I can sort of just building off of that, because this is kind of going back to something that we had, uh, I had spoken to Richard about. So, um, even if we might lose the simultaneity of the February one, I mean, I think we'll still be able to get a a, a few sites to be able to. Oh no, no, no! no. We're, we're, we may lose Giza, but we're going to have Bosnia. We may yes, have I the understand. American Stonehenge. We will have Florida. Uh, we may have the Washington Monument. I got to work on that one. Yeah. I've got two possibilities, but I. Definitely want to measure the monument in the center of the political firestorm going on on the but planet again, but right again, now. But, but again, we're sort of setting out like a beacon, right? So like I, I um, last week's show gave the example of like basically like illuminating like a flare, saying hello, like wherever or however we're sort of communicating. Now, the thing is, is that if we keep incorporating these very, very, very special number sequences uh, frequencies, tones, uh, um, and, and building upon each transmission so that we're sort of refining this message. I think the other important thing is that, so for example, these, uh, these, frequency, these frequencies that I was able to identify, while they're kind of interesting, we should incorporate that into the subsequent message. So as we sort of receive information and then can analyze it, if we're taking stuff from what we've received to be able to send it back out, it's like, hey, you know, this is, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to see something in what we're receiving from you guys. Um, here, we're going to try this again. And then as we sort of build this up and as hopefully there's more momentum that we can uh, continue to sort of build with other participation from just other listeners and people out there with with antennas or this and that 
the overall intention on a metaphysical sort of way starts really uh, getting up there. And I think the, the vision, um, because uh, as we were sort of uh, starting to discuss some of the protocols of how the, signal, uh, the signaling is going to go out and how the recording is going to be happening, um, the idea, uh, what we were sort of talking about for this February, this February date was to have you, Maria, sort of start the process, but then all of a sudden somebody from somewhere else start the process again and then what we're going to do is try to figure out sort of a way and and Richard and David and I had sort of discussed different sort of technological uh, ways that we can somewhat synchronize as best as possible okay um, the signal a looping signal that's going out so on the receiving end somebody or whatever is 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 taking a listen or 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 uh, acknowledging this are going to see one sort of little beacon from one powerful point, because I believe that these, these megalithic sites, these ancient sites are acting as like really powerful natural frequency uh, or like signal amplifiers, right? Yep. So if all of a sudden we have one light turning on and then on another part of the planet, boom, another one, we're, we're basically sending out a message of global coordination over very large distances. Okay, so, we may have a February 4th experiment, Maria, an antipodal sacred site to be part of this first network experiment. Um, I, I, I talked by an email with Paul Wallace, uh, who was my guest last Sunday. He has two good friends who have carried out a ceremony at Ayers Rock, now called in the Aboriginal language, Ululu, I believe. And they're going to be in Uluru. touch with... Uh, say again? Uluru. Uluru. They're going to be in touch with me this week. I'm going to do my damnedest to get them to get there and be part of this first experiment in the middle of nowhere at dawn in Britain on the 4th. It's what, the, probably the 5th uh, in the evening uh, there in, in Australia. But, Can I add something, Richard? Yeah, sure. We don't want to forget the importance of the human aspect. You know, like David said, we're, we're receivers. We have a, our brain body. We have our spirits. And in my book, Ram I Am, they use the bad guys. Um, they use a human as um, he's a superconductor. They experiment. They change him genetically. Uh, his his supervillain name is Torque, and he can control torsion fields. But they use him to start up the earth grid and as we're around you're not the recommending world, we, we do a sacrifice are you no but just <laughs> oh, a, a meditation a we should have like a little like robert i Monroe, have candidates just a, a, a few a little <laughs> phrase that we all say before we start this can we keep this scientific for the first one we can branch out you know but there's you know the old cliche, I, too many cooks. I think it's extremely important to incorporate a little I bit do. the metaphysical. Spirituality uh, is scientific. But it's so cliche, yes. guys. But well, it's, why not send um, a song that... I would like to keep our messages and our signals separate. You know, we do that. I want to do a whole transmission where we don't use the radios at all. We just send with people in these places, Intense. and then yeah. we see what we receive. But that's another separate experiment. Mixing our metaphors madly, I don't think is a good idea. I agree with Richard. Don't mix the data I, with well, the I conclusions. Think that, 
the the thing is is that we got to understand that these sacred frequencies that we're we're operating on and that we're referring to and these this sacred geometry has an absolute direct connection to the human body. I mean, these are these are things that are coming from different disciplines of 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 different uh, ancient beliefs. So I, I agree with you. I, we have to keep the scientific. The goal with all of this is for there to be enough skepticism going into this. Right. We have to keep an open mind to be able to see if this is going to lead us anywhere. And that, that being that being said, I think it's extremely important that we sort of incorporate as much of the scientific method to what we're doing. There's a lot of science and math and, and, and stuff that's that's uh, the basis of what we're trying to do anyways. But I think that we can't just it doesn't need to be a focus, but it needs to be a consideration because this entire network has a very strong impact on people and people that live around these areas. I mean, you've yeah. been to these sites before it, you were saying it yourself just a moment ago, talking about the feeling, you know, and Maria was, was alluding to the same thing. So I think, I think that people have become enlightened and awakened enough. That's um, what the ETs sort of, are interested in. They're, they're not so much interested in our technology or they're really interested in the evolution of our spirituality. That's what's going to lead us to this, um, you know, becoming one, a part of the galactic community and all that. It's it's more about the spirituality. So it is important. If we're to going to import this information to the mainstream, we need to be rigorous, disciplined, not mix our metaphors. I fully want to do a consciousness experiment. Hell, I was part of arts consciousness experiments. He saved my life by having people in essence, you know, join in the frequencies and keep me alive. But that's I remember that. Oh my God. But that's down that. the road. I, I'd like this first one to be as scientific as possible. The second one to be, you know, Giza. If we can't get Giza on the first one, we can get it on the second one. The third one, we put people like Maria and other like minded people in other sites and instead of using the radios to transmit all we do is use them to record what we get, but we use intention, specifically resonating intention in a controlled standalone experiment to see if it literally can be mined over frequency. Cool. Well, I think, look, at, I think in general, uh, people from different disciplines of meditation or, or different things are, are, are starting to learn some of these deeper tools. And I think that were probably understood much better from ancient cultures as they were, you know, probably just in nature and sort of, you know, able to kind of look inside. And whereas, you know, our, our, our society at this point is so mechanized and there's I mean, so much I, technology. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a combination. It's a combination of the both. I agree with you that, that I think that it's important for, for this to have any sort of applicability into the mainstream, that this needs to be grounded down to down, down as much into science. To begin with, method. then we can branch yes. out into much more elegant. Like the Maria, is, I presume when you do your work that you go through some kind of, preparation internally meditation whatever right unmuting helps who are you talking to maria oh sorry uh richard no I, i'm i'm unmuted uh yes okay well see that's a personal thing but to do it yes, synchronized please. would contaminate the data i think and and we need to do this in a way 
that the mainstream will pay attention. For instance, through my friend Greg, the astrophysicist, I've got a, 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 a list of mainstream radio astronomy types that are kind of looking at us with, you know, sideways, like, what are these characters up to? If we can present them with cause and effect and, uh, you know, transmission answers that make sense, we will get a whole new toehold in the mainstream, which will get a whole bunch of new audience to participate at whatever level that they can and that we kind of, you know, would like them to. And this will grow, you know, in that old cliche like Topsy, but we got to walk before we run and we have to run before we fly. Okay. Okay, we got 10 minutes left. What do we miss? Well, I think probably the next, some of the next steps are really, and, and we sort of discussed this last week, but one of the things, Maria, that we were discussing last week was to really open source this. So we want to be very transparent with people in terms of what our approach is, uh, what is the process, sort of like a standard operating procedure. Um, I think this is going to kind of naturally come together as uh, we're sort of working with you on you know, how to transmit, what is being transmitted, how do we record this, and then even coming down to sort of a time sort of map of where you're going to be, and then we can get all of this information. We want to start really being able to have this information just accessible to the public so that they can see exactly what it is that that people are doing, what is the hardware that's being used. Yeah, we know we, we, we publish an experimental protocol from equipment to where Marie is going to be at the 815, that kind of thing. Exactly. And so the thing is, is just to keep this sort of as like a, as like an open book so that people can see, because we are devising some of this as, as we go based off of what has been received and how we're interpreting some of the information. Okay, Maria, I have a question. Sure. Is there a lay connection between Stonehenge and the Bosnian complex? I can look into that uh, in terms of uh, global um, grid systems. I just need the coordinates of the Bosnian pyramid, which I could probably get on Google. And yes, I can form uh, relationships to that off the top of my head now. I don't know, but I would imagine that there would be. Okay. Are you going to be able to be with us tomorrow night, if even for like a few minutes, as, as we bring Sam up to speed on this amazing idea? Yeah, I could be around for the, for the last hour. Excellent, excellent, perfect, perfect. Okay, because the first two hours I want him to bring us up to speed on his research. The tunnels now, he told me, are 300 feet deep. I want him to get two radios. One, David, which he puts up on the top of the apex of the, of the, of the main pyramid and, and records there what he's getting. The other he gives to a colleague and goes down in the tunnels, and if they get the same thing through 300 feet of earth overburden, we can guarantee it ain't radio the radio's responding to. It's a hyperdimensional torsion field signal. Oh, that's an interesting idea, yeah, because a radio wave wouldn't pass. No that. way at 144, 432 megahertz. So he no. instantly got very he, – he is so excited about getting to be part of this but he knows basically nothing. So tomorrow night is a combination of we're going to find out what his latest data is, and then we're going to brief him on how he can be part of this remarkable experiment. See, it was, it was um, Robert Temple, an Egyptian Don, who proved the, the connection of the Druidic-type people to, to Giza in that when they were digging 
for the skeletal remains of the ancient people in the Giza Plateau. First, that was the brown-skinned people who were the common Egyptians. Then when they went deeper, they found Africans. And then when they went deeper in the soil, they found the red-haired, blonde-haired, blue-eyed mummies. And and they were resemblant of the people of of England, what is now England, which mm. used to be. So, as so well as the that, ones that were found as mummies in the uh, Chinese Gobi Desert. Isn't that interesting? So that would mean the oldest people dating to the oldest development of the complex mm. were not African, were not Egyptian. And, and, that, and that explains the Cubit. So they, their rulers all deferred because they were trying to figure out what the Cubit was. They, they didn't build this thing. Well, remember, Maria got data from the, from the British archives of the antiquities folks that have been prowling around these monuments for you know, a couple of hundred years. Of a long-headed people, right, Maria? That's right. I discovered the elongated skulled people of Stonehenge in 2015. Okay, hold it there. Ron, are you with us? Oh, yes. I was just going to break in and ask about the long-headed people of Stonehenge. And related to Maria's find. Because there's another data point in the ancient long-haired guys being on Earth first. Ron, go ahead. Yeah, uh, what I have so far is pretty sketchy, and I thought about it this afternoon, but there was nothing I could look up that quick. There are some new finds, which means in the last three to five years, because that's the way academia works, and then they announce it, uh, in Morocco that have been dated back to 220 to 300,000 years. They have the, – the business of setting error bars is kind of flexible, so that's what the numbers were, 220,000 to uh, 300,000 and they have elongated skulls. And, and again, so do whenever you all see statues at the Ballast Rock in Utah, it's all they look like beings from another planet. I think they are beings from another right. planet. I, they're beings well, they, from Mars. Wait, wait, wait. There's, Mars. there's another. Yeah, Mars is good, but there's another. No, let me stick in one little angle here. Uh, it's very. Uh, one must consider. We are connected closely to, to, ne- to Neanderthals, and yet Neanderthals, pure Neanderthals, had a brain of a different shape than we ended up with, and that elongated skull would be very nice. So it just occurred to me a while ago that perhaps those long-headed ones were the apex version of the Neanderthal line. You know, I believe that we got crossbred like crazy for thousands and thousands of years to produce the current versions of us. And mm-hmm. perhaps they didn't want to have two apex versions wandering around. So the big extermination cycle, flood, what have you, was to get rid of the long-headed Neanderthal apex uh, who hadn't necessarily done anything wrong. It was just like, which one of these two strains of cattle are we going to keep? Because if we keep them both, they're going to either collaborate and cause us trouble or they're going to uh, – Com, uh, combat each other and uh, make a mess of things. Well, and that perhaps goes to the, the storyline. That goes to the storyline that Paul Wallace was outlining. That you know, basically, Eden was a prison camp <laughs> with a lot of slave labor. And then Keith t- and he talked about Sitchin and the validation of some of Sitchin's points. And so there's, right. a, there's a big meta picture kind of coming together here, anchored in real anthropology and paleontology. 
Marina, well, I think we're trying to, and I think we're trying to tap into that sacred network that was, yeah, yeah. you know, tapped into by the. Yeah, I, I also feel, you know, it's about the, the landscape remembering this because there are so many unusual finds around the Stonehenge environs for, for one. And when I got up very close to a skull, I went to Cambridge University to photograph a long skulled woman and I had five minutes to myself. You could almost, I'm sure Jonathan may resonate with this, you could almost feel her her energy still in her skull. And when I put my hand from her throat chakra going to her third eye and around the back of her head, it was like there was two energy points on the crown, like two kind of higher crown chakra points. So I think that it is a very spiritual dynamic still left in these skulls uh, wherever they are on the planet, a bit like a crystal skull. Maria, I'm going to send you a picture of the balanced rock area in utah there's a large stone circle and it has all these wonderful sculptures around it hey send that to me too jonathan i want to because i i might have been there me and... too me too please please and you can all go oh you guys <laughs> hey guys we have literally 40 some seconds any last words from anybody well, I want to say that the very fact that this massive explosion occurred today, I mean, you know, basically yesterday now, yep. in perfect context, so today, and of course, the location being the Royal Cube at 20.601, and within tolerance of Chichen Itza being 20.68 south latitude, I, I, I think... There's no question we're so far beyond coincidence here that we should have somebody donate one million dollars to the cause because <laughs> that sounds like a good it, start. I mean, really, this is probably okay. the most exciting data. David, I mean, David, we're out of runway. Tomorrow yeah. night, yeah. we continued in part two with my dear friend Dr. Sam Osmanovich, who has an entire field of ancient structures, something like 30,000 years old, to play with. And on the 4th of February, we're going to play. So until tomorrow night, same time, same bat channel, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.